And welcome back to Ornate Stairwells. I'm Autumn. I'm joined as always by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. Nia, if you could play uh, Mahjong with one David Lynch character, no, three David Lynch characters. It's you, me, and three David Lynch characters. Who are we picking? Mm. We're we're assuming they know how to play Mahjong, and we're yeah. assuming that we know how to play Mahjong here. Um. I mean, lady whose entire life is hitting <laughs> hitting a deer with her car every time she drives anywhere. I would not pick her. She seems she like she's under a lot of stress these days. 
I would I would pick um I would pick um This is a weird like what's your blunt rotation that you've come up with. Yeah. <laughs> I would pick Pete. Yeah. I would pick um I would pick one of the um what are the brothers called? Mitchum brothers? No, I wouldn't pick a Mitchum brother, though that would be a good choice. Because you'd want both of them. You'd want both of them, and I don't want to use two slots. I would pick the um Jennifer Jason Lee character. Not the Tim Roth, not the husband, just Jennifer Jason Lee. Um, the the assassin who loves Wendy's. Yeah. <laughs> and I would pick Sarah Palmer entered my mind. That would be bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like of David Lynch characters who canonically play Mahjong, Sarah Palmer in The Return specifically is like high up down there. Well, the problem with the problem with playing with Sarah Palmer is that you're like, hey, guys, bring twenty dollars in ones. We're not playing for real money. We're just using the money as like sort of, you know. We're just, we're not playing for money. And Sarah Palmer shows up with two grand in 20s, and she's playing for real money. <laughs> <laughs> and and ruins the vibes. <laughs> I, so I'm, I'm picking the Jennifer Jason Lee assassin. I'm picking um, Pete. And I am picking, I might be picking um, Alvin Strait. I don't know. No. I'm I'm picking um Harry Dean Stanton in Is he in Wild at Heart? No. Who am I thinking of? I'm I'm picking Willem Dafoe in Wild at Heart. <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> the worst man in the universe. Yeah. Molly watched Wild at Heart this week and you and I were going ape shit about it. <laughs> I love Wild at Heart. So I love much. Wild at Heart so much. I did not expect to come out of this journey being like Wild at Heart. Yeah, the best David Lynch movie. Yeah, follow closely, but <laughs> not follow closely. I said last night that the straight story. And I it it broke my brain. <laughs> I think it's my least favorite David Lynch movie. I can't go with you there. Lost Highway is so much worse than the Straight Story. Are you joking right now? Lost Highway sucks. The streets are... Okay, we're doing it. We're doing it live. We're doing it live. I'm looking at a list of David Lynch movies. Um, I think, I think that Lost Highway is worse than... We should, we should just do... Or is better than Straight Story. We should just do a, an actual ranking after we watch Inland Empire, but um, feature films. Eraserhead, better or worse than The Straight Story? Better. Unquestionably worse. The Elephant Man, better or worse than The Straight Story? Better. Unquestionably worse. Dune. Better. Obviously, Dune is better than The Straight Story. <laughs> Let's not be crazy. Blue Velvet. At the, at the end of this ranking, <laughs> Dune might be number two behind Wild at Heart. <laughs> <laughs> he is the Kwisatz Haderach. <laughs> is Blue Velvet better or worse than The Straight Story? Better. Yeah, clearly. Uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me? Better. Twin Peaks Firewalk with me is better. Um, Lost Highway. 
better, but it, they're close. Lost Highway fucking blows. Um, and then Mulholland Drive. Obviously, Mulholland Drive is better than the Straight Story. Yeah. Um, I I was really taken with the Straight Story, but I'm also given to hyperbole, and might have tweeted yesterday that it's the second best David Lynch movie, which is an insane opinion. <laughs> It's no yeah. Dune. <laughs> um, but it is a really good movie. Before we get there, though... Um... Are you are you messing with the little... Oh, maybe. I don't mean to be, but maybe I am. There it is. It's back. Okay. Um... You watch any other movies this week? Um... No. I'm asking I'm asking for the audience who's hearing this part first. We kind of discussed your week in um, yeah. the non-homophobia zone. Um for for reasons that we discussed in the non-homophobia zone, I did watch a movie this week. Um and I watched They Live by Night, which is I believe the debut feature by Nicholas Ray. I believe it came out in 1948. Um it is um it is a noir movie, and you might be thinking to yourself, oh no, Autumn's going to be explaining the plot of this noir movie for the next 45 minutes. But we're going to watch it soon. We're going to watch it for stairwells, probably in the near future. And also, there is no plot to over-explain. I, I'm going to tell you the plot of the movie right now. I'll do it in like two sentences, three sentences, something like that. I'm not holding myself to a hard and fast rule. There is a boy who gets out of prison. He meets a girl. They are doomed. At the end, one of them dies. That's the plot of the movie. Doomed lovers. That's yeah. it. It's not a complicated film. Also, it gets an F for stairs. <laughs> um... I think this movie's phenomenal. I did my, you know, my customary, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen tweet. Um, it's not, it's not the greatest Nicholas Ray movie I've ever seen. <laughs> it's hard to be in a lonely place. Um, the thing is, I would say that there's like 45 minutes of this movie that I like better than In a Lonely Place, you know? I think it's sort of more consistently good than In a Lonely Place is. But In a Lonely Place kind of has the best ending of any movie I've ever seen, and so, like... I kind of think In a Lonely Place is banger the whole way through, though. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that In a Lonely Place reaches a different echelon of movie in the last ten minutes, you know? Yeah. Like, sort of launches itself from, oh, this was a really good, to this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen in, like, the last ten minutes. Whereas this felt like it was like, I was really taken with it from the start and it carried that energy all the way through, you know, and it ended in exactly the place that I knew it was going to from the first scene, you know? Yeah. Um, you get introduced to this young kid who uh, has turned to a life of crime, even though he knows better. Uh, and you're like, wow, he's going to meet a woman and be doomed and die because this is a 40s movie. And you know what? That happens. <laughs> yeah. Not a spoiler. 
Um, so yeah, really, really liked that movie. It was part of the Criterion Holiday Noir. I watched it on like January 31st, so it might be off the collection now. I don't remember. Um, but there's like, there's like a noir collection every month now from Criterion because I guess they're catering to me specifically these days. Because there's like, there was November noir and then holiday noir and now there's February noir that rolled out. I think there was a January one. There's like, there's like a Christmas tree in like two scenes of They Live By Night. So it was part of the Christmas noir <laughs> collection. Yeah. Um. Anyway, should we talk about the straight story? Yeah. We've been doing this podcast for an hour and 40 minutes at this point. I guess we can talk about the movie. I mean, not from the listener's perspective. Not from the listener. Time moves strange in Lordran. You like to spoil for people how long the non-homophobia zone is going to be. I do. This Wikipedia article is insane. (laughs) Do you see this bit right here? Um, what? Um, because Alvin's legs are and eyes are too impaired for him to receive a driver's license, he hitches a trailer to his recently purchased 30-year-old John Deere 110 lawn tractor, having a maximum speed of about 5 miles per hour, 2.2 meters per second, or 8 kilometers per hour, and sets off on the 240-mile, parentheses, 390-kilometer journey from Lawrence, Iowa to Mount Zion, Wisconsin. What an insane thing to write on the first sentence of a Wikipedia page. Um, so, this is a 1999 um, uh, David Lynch-directed motion picture. Um, Walt Disney Pictures presents... Yes, David Lynch's The Straight Story. Um, the... If I, if you don't mind me half recollecting, uh, from the David Lynch brackets auto unquote biography, that is hagiography, um, I believe the story on this one is that, um, Jack Fisk and Mary Sweeney, who I believe Mary Sweeney and, um, David Lynch were divorced by the time this picture released, believe Jack Fisk and Mary Sweeney had written the script adapted from a real story of a real man um and had showed it to their friend david you know mary's husband at the time not as a like oh we want you to direct this but more for like hey we finished the script do you want to give it a look tell us what you think you know that sort of thing and Lynch was so ca- taken with the character of Alvin Strait that he decided he wanted to direct it himself, which was not really what anyone had imagined. Um, uh, Jack Fisk also, it should be noted, is like Lynch's like um, one of his most long-term friends, um, one of the key figures in making Eraserhead, and someone who Lynch had not worked with in since I don't believe Dune at this point. Like, they had spent 15 years not working together, in part because of a sort of, like, professional rivalry that was kind of going on that was perhaps romantic in some ways. Um, Not romantic between the two of them. David Lynch is the most heterosexual man who's ever lived. Um, But um, Jack Fisk, a very well-renowned production designer, art designer type guy. Not much of a director on his own, I don't believe. But, um, 
Yeah, so... Because it's not like a... You know, for most of the films that David Lynch ever directed, he was a writer on them, you know. Um, and this is one of the few where... I'm sure he made his own tweaks to the script. Um, I can't imagine that he didn't, but it is very different tonally or or subject matter-wise than a David Lynch movie, but it is still extremely a David Lynch movie sh- through and through. Yeah. <clears throat> there is a... Like, the experience of going to watch this was... It's on Disney+. Plus, And so there's something... At once, I'm just trying to find information about Jack Fisk. Don't mind me. Sorry. Um, there's at once something very like, uh, correct. There's, there's something that feels very appropriate about loading up Disney Plus and typing in the word "straight," <laughs> and then you find a David Lynch movie. And that feels wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And then you watch the David Lynch movie, and you're like, this is a Disney movie. The direction's a lot better than the, like, I'm assuming the, the movie that it showed for us afterwards, which is like, I forget the title. I took a photo of it. It was something like Horse Story. A horse? Hor- it was something it wasn't a Horse Story, but yeah. It was giving, it was giving Brokeback Mountain. Disney horse sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, spoiled Michael spends the summer at his cousin Tommy's Montana ranch. Um, can I just real quick give you, um, a, a couple movies that Jack Fisk has worked on in his illustrious career? Okay. Um, Badlands. Have you seen Badlands? Mm-mm. We should do Badlands this year. Badlands is one of my favorites. Um, Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, Carrie. He is the husband of Sissy Spacek. That was the thing I was forgetting, by the way. Um, uh, Days of Heaven, um... Eraserhead. Eraserhead, um, On the Air, um, The Straight Story, Mulholland Drive, There Will Be Blood, um, yeah, I I guess his other big collaborator is Terrence Malick. Oh, The the Master works with Paul Thomas Anderson these days, so, Killers of the Flower Moon, so, still working. Um, also, it doesn't look like he was a writer, but he, I... He must be involved because he's married to Sissy Spacek, so has been since the seventies. And did work on this. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm misremembering the part about the writer thing, but whatever. Yeah, I interrupted you. I apologize. Um. Yeah, and there is also like this way that, especially at the beginning of this movie, like it almost feels like you're starting to watch. Blue Velvet or something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a certain David Lynch uh, way of presenting things. Yes. Where when the plot ends up kind of being a Disney movie plot. Yes. There's like something. Uh, it's like more unsettling to me than if it was a David Lynch thing where you see also the seedy underbelly or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think about this. Like, one... it feels like, like a thing that they sometimes talk about on like abnormal mapping, especially with like Emin Jackson and some recent podcasts and stuff is like you watch a horror movie and there's like the dread of like 
what's going to happen and you don't know when the scare is going to happen. And then they like show you the monster and then like that tension is expelled. And even though the movie will like try to do the tension again, once you like know what the monster looks like, it like, Mm -hmm. it like dissipates some of the tension. And sometimes like a David Lynch movie will start and you'll have this like idyllic Midwest Mm -hmm. or idyllic Pacific Northwest or whatever. Ideal America. Yes. Quote unquote. Yes. Um, and then you'll get to the part where there's just like a, a guy who is extremely violent and weird or something. Huffing on oxygen and raping Isabella Rossellini. Yeah. Um, and it's like you saw you saw the monster of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And it like dissipates some of the tension of just like uh, the American dream, the like idea of America is just like an unsettling thing. And then this movie just thinks that it's good. Yeah. The whole time. It's it's unhinged. And it's <laughs> fucked up. It's fucked. It's so fucked up. Um, I think it's why I love it. And so for me watching this movie, one, it like, it makes other David Lynch stuff feel even more conservative to me. Oh, that yeah. That he makes this movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um... Because this movie suggests that David Lynch believes in the America that is being sullied. Yes. And this is, this is why. And not that that America was always fake. This is, um, this makes it feel like reading that dog, dog shit biography. <laughs> it made it feel worth it to me because I think. I think David Lynch is a born liar. I think he is... I think he loves selling the legend. I think he loves... There are so many stories in the biography that I have heard in other places, in him talking, and he tells the story the same way every time, so that the embellishments that are so obvious must be real because he tells it the same way every time you know yeah i'm I'm being facetious with that must be real part you know um uh, um and, and so we talked a lot in the in the blue velvet episode about it's not blue velvet is not just about um is not just about here's the american midwest and it's perfect and pastoral and all these things. This romantic fantasy of what the Midwest can be. And ooh, there's the seedy underbelly. It's not just that. Yeah. We talked in the in that episode, and I, I think it was a really productive, interesting conversation that has informed a lot of our other David Lynch talk about it is how the myth itself is built. It is not just about the myth, but the it's about the imagery. It is about how the myth perpetuates itself in popular media, you know? Yeah. Um, and this is a thing that Twin Peaks The Return goes really hard on. This is a thing that Twin Peaks goes really hard on. In like, um, you know, The Return recasts you know, on some level, and this is complicated, but The Return takes Laura Palmer from specific woman in, in danger, you know, it, traumatized woman, to this sort of mythic place, you know, in episode eight, she's the golden golden ball of light that's going to redeem all of the world's sins and all this stuff, you know? Yeah. 
Um, this movie is just so completely bought into the the vision, you yeah. know. Um, and 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 Lynch has described in the biography and in in some of his other work, you know, episode eight ties into this that like he sort of thinks about the atomic bomb as undoing this perfect and beautiful America that existed at one time, you know? Um, and, and that comes through on some level in this movie. It is more about the war in France because that is what, you know, um, some of these characters experienced is world war two on the European front. Um, it's, fucking unhinged (laughs) that he has spent decades upon decades making movies about how this thing is fucked up but to watch this movie and you see that truly in his heart he buys into it on some level yeah he wants to believe it exists yeah he i (laughs) there's a way that this movie so i went to undergrad in the upper peninsula of michigan Uh uh-huh um which, like, a lot of the Midwest has, like, Midwestern culture, right? Yeah. But, like, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan is just isolated in a way, or, like, historically has been. Obviously, the internet, like, changes this. Um, Lake Superior is such a weird... Like, I was telling this to my kid today when we were driving by Lake Michigan. Like, Lake Superior has so much fucking fresh water in it that it literally makes its own weather and climate. Weather and climate is different there than it is, like, in Chicago, which is not that yeah. far away. Yeah. Um, We can have a heat wave here, and there can be a giant blizzard in, yeah. in like, Marquette, Michigan, where I was going to school. Yeah. Um, And old people, like, there's this, like, Midwestern thing in general of like this stoic determination, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh everybody knows the midwestern grandpa who like refuses to go to the doctor and is like wants to do everything his own way and everything. Mm-hmm. Right? And in the UP they're like, "Oh, we have this untranslatable Finnish word, sisu." And it's and then they tell you what it is and it's just this midwestern it's just grit or like Stoic determination. Yeah. Stoicism. It's like, it's not even fucking untranslatable. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But you think that, like, what you have is, like, some uh amazing, unique piece of, like, this is what makes us special and better and, like, yes. able to take, you know, we can survive the harsh winters of, of like, the Upper Peninsula <coughs> and the harsh wildlife and everything because we have Sisu. And you're like... What you have is what independent people is, like, pointedly a critique of. Yes. The book Independent People is about this attitude as a thing that is in and of itself, like, a cultural thing that makes communism, which is ultimately going to be better for people, a thing that people fight against because they think that it's important to be independent. He he thinks the real man, (laughs) Alvin Strait. Yes. Who did this? Uh-huh. And then the movie fully believes in the romantic dream of what he's doing. Uh-huh. That what he's doing is somehow more noble, is a better display of his like true desire to get over himself, quote unquote, to connect with his brother, than to just fucking ask his friends for some money so he can take a fucking bus there. It's 
incredible that in one fell swoop rely on your fucking community to connect with your brother <laughs> so midwestern fucking stokeness is one of the stupidest things in the world and this movie just believes that it's like the true like this is the yes. human spirit yes. and what's beautiful yes. and i'm like i can't fucking rely on your community i can't believe that the man who would go on to make Twin Peaks The Return would so beautifully and perfectly undercut his entire career in one <laughs> fell swoop. He cuts out the legs from every movie he's ever made in this movie. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I think it's insane. I think it's absolutely unhinged that this movie exists. <laughs> and I love it for that. <laughs> I just... It feel- I feel... I, the other thing too, and this is why I like mm-hmm. this stuff we agree on and you just have a different feeling about it. And I maybe feel this is true about like David Lynch's, but I watched this movie too and I'm like, this is just a Disney, like a, uh-huh. a made, could be made for TV Disney movie. Yeah. Yeah. And David Lynch is just a better director. And so like yes. the acting is better and it's funny. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that like, um, this movie I, makes me the woman whose entire life is hitting a car every time. She <laughs> hitting a deer every time with her car whenever she drives anywhere. Because I just think about this movie and I'm like, <laughs> um, this movie. I'm I'm trying to collect my thoughts because I had a couple of different things spinning out from what you said. Um, I joked. A couple minutes into this movie, there's like a rain scene. There's a scene where rain, and we have a joke about, you know, in Rashomon, he dyed this whole town's water supply to get the shot. Yeah. And so sometimes we'll do, you know, other things. And I <laughs> joked, they dyed an entire town's opioid crisis to get this shot. Because in my head, I'm like, you couldn't make the straight story today because it has to be about the opioid crisis. And then I realized, no, it doesn't, because this movie doesn't exist in the real world. Yeah. This is not a movie where the opioid crisis exists. This is not a movie where, uh, quote-unquote, economic anxiety exists. Um, because this is not a movie where anybody who isn't white exists. Yeah. Because this is not, this is in a fa- magical fantasy land. <laughs> <laughs> this beautiful and perfect white America that's just cornfields for miles upon miles upon miles. Um, it's fucking insane. <laughs> and, and, and the thing that draws me, the, the thing that draws me to this, not in a like, it, it, when only yesterday does this, I want to buy into the, the the romantic fantasy. You know, I'm like, yeah. oh, I should just Stardew Valley when I watch Only Yesterday. You know, I should yeah. just give up my life and move to a farm. I don't feel that way when I watch the straight story. The thing that I feel watching this movie is so many people that I grew up around, so many people, um in my family that I still talk to now think that they live in this America. They truly believe that like, this is the America that they live in. And I, I love this movie because it is so perfectly, beautifully fake bullshit. (laughs) It feels, it is 
it is so fake that it sort of wraps around to being a dissection by accident because because blue velvet is actually a dissection is actually taking this shit apart the straight story is bought into it believes it so firmly that it it feels so much more venomous than, <laughs> than blue velvet does and i don't think it's on purpose i don't i think that lynch believes think this crap there's stuff in the beginning of this movie where like he goes to the doctor and he's all stubborn about it yeah and like needs to change his the way that he's living and he's not mm-hmm. um like that that's a, a part of it right yeah, yeah. um the people in his life are like, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't get on a lawnmower and drive, like, across the country. Mm-hmm. There are other ways that we can get you to go see your brother. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, The very first, like, encounter he has on the road is a tour bus. He, like also encounters someone running away from home and convinces her that that's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But then all of that stuff, like that's the, that part of the, the, the girl who's like pregnant, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like teenage pregnancy. Yeah. Basically running away from home is the dipping point where there's all these people telling Alvin, this is bad and wrong. And you shouldn't do this. The rest of the movie is him proving them wrong. Mm-hmm. And that girl is the tipping point of, oh, Alvin is able to teach everyone so much about family because he, like, hasn't been talking to his brother for years, which is also just a thing that's happened in my family with, like, there's been siblings that stopped talking to each other. My, uh, famously, my, my grandpa, my mom's side uh remarried a woman who didn't like my mom and i just from the ages of five until he died like shortly before he died and i went to visit him just never saw the man never heard from the man yeah um and at that point he lived in arizona but midwestern through and through sold john deere stuff and also (laughs) did like farm realtor stuff Mm -hmm. (coughs) the man would have been so proud that alvin got a john deere yeah much better choice than that Reds. Did John Deere fund this movie? What's going on with the fucking product placement in this shit? <laughs> this is also just the Midwest, though. Yeah. It is, it, it there... is true to life that if you just filmed the Midwest, you would see John Deere logos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, You would just have big ads selling John Deere. You'd have a big Ed selling, he selling been, John Deere. It's fucked up that he's named Tom. He should have yeah. been called Ed in this movie. I mean, I'm sure that these are like, some of these are probably real people. Oh, based on. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's a real my, story. My grandpa, the, the, the doctor scene early in this movie made me think about this. Um, my, my dad's dad, my granddad, um, he was not a very nice person throughout most of his life. Um, to, to the point that, that when he died, there was a part of me that's like, yeah, he was a mean some bitch, and I don't feel that bad for him. Um, when, when he died, um, it was, 
And this was really hard on my dad. It was a years long process of him being, he's a very stubborn man in the same way Alvin Strait is. And, and, and Alvin Strait is, oh, I'm so stubborn. I'm going to drive on my lawnmower to um, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. To see my brother. And, and my, my granddad had the same stubbornness in him. And what it got him was several years of slowly losing his faculties, having to go from his home to a nursing home to a hospital to an ICU to to hospice care um it there was no dignity to it it was tragic it took forever it took everything out of us it you know it it really like mentally fucked up my dad for a long time i think my dad is still fucked up about the way in which his dad went out with just like every ounce of his humanity stripped from him because of his own fucking stubbornness in a lot of ways. And I suspect that my dad will probably die in the same way. <laughs> you know? Um, seeing this movie just be like, no, if you try hard enough, you can just become old with this dignity is so, <laughs> it is a magical fantasy land. And, yeah, and, my... and, and the, the movie knows on some level the sissy space character the way that uh the state takes her children from her you know um it knows that like the system quote unquote will rob good hard-working folk of of their life and their their dignity and their uh romantic dream um but alvin straight just has a can-do-it attitude that he overcomes it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? That's the part that's also... Like, the beginning of this movie feels like there's so many threads with, like, Alvin's health, <clears throat> with, you know, his daughter and, like, everything going on there. And then once he gets on the lawnmower, it just becomes this inspiring story of the, you know, determination of humanity mm-hmm. to to go do this thing. And there's, like, a way in which him, like, so he has not talked to his brother for years because of his stubbornness. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain way in which the movie is, like, suggesting that he is, like, getting over himself a little bit to go make amends with his brother. Mm -hmm. That he's having come to Jesus moment, even, about it. Yeah, yeah. But all of that remains wrapped up in what makes his connection, reconnection with the brother so powerful, is still an expression of that stubbornness and that stoicness and that, like, determination. The, 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 the line... He, he's not... He is still committing to doing things his way when he goes to his brother, and it suggests that that is actually, like, a more him doing this because now he's gone through this journey himself to go reconnect with his brother. Whereas truly what would be more important is for him to fully get over himself of being like, I've been so stubborn about so many things in my life. I should just like rely on people to go get to my brother. Right. This, this movie believes that when my grandfather was dying of leukemia, and finally allowed my family to go see him because he knew he was dying. And then to me, 
in like his kitchen while he was like very close to death, uh, cried and apologized to me that he wasn't in my life more that like he, if he would just even been even more determined and stubborn about that, it would have been even better. Yes. The, the and not that he fought, <laughs> he should have just fucking gotten over everything when I was fucking six me. Give him a year <laughs> to work out whatever fucking Midwestern bullshit he has goes going on so I can have a fucking grandpa. Yeah. This this the ending of the movie is is Harry Dean Stanton comes out on the porch. Um he's so perfectly cast. He gives an incredible performance in the minute he's in the movie. Um Harry Dean comes out on the porch and he says, you came all the way on that thing to see me. And it like validates Alvin in that moment that like, oh, if he had accepted the ride from Danny Reardon when his car broke or when his lawnmower broke down, um, you know, if if the only way that they could truly have buried the hatchet is if uh, Harry Dean Stanton's character, if Lyle had seen the way in which Alvin got there, that if he had come in the car, it yeah. wouldn't have worked, um, which is stupid. <laughs> yeah. A stupid premise. <laughs> A stupid. I love this movie so much. <laughs> it's so fucking good. I just, there's like a specific way that like, Sisu mm-hmm. and all the other Midwestern versions of it. <laughs> that all flavors of the Midwest are so proud of. Yes. Has like made my my specific life worse, has made the life of many of my friends who I care very deeply about worse. Yes. Uh has made people I don't care has made so much of life in the Midwest worse. Yes. Uh again, independent people is about how this attitude destroys people. Yes. And, like, prevents, like, true adoption of communist systems that could make the lives of people better. Yeah. And this movie's like, but actually it's great. <laughs> it's great that man got on his lawnmower, and it's what made him able to reconnect with his brother, is that he did it his way. And didn't actually sacrifice that much, or get over himself that much. <laughs> Here's it. I just, I can't love the movie you can because of like my ideological opposition to what this movie is. I love, for me, my life is so enmeshed with this myth, you know? My family, you know, my mom and my stepdad and my dad, um, my stepmom's a New Yorker who's lived in the Midwest for the last 30 years, so she's like a weird other... I don't know what she's got going on. Um, I, th- I, I think she's lived in... I think she's lived in the Midwest for a lot longer than she lived in New York, and she's still somehow a New Yorker, you know? I don't think you're ever, like, truly from here in yeah. some ways. Anyway, um... My grandparents spent most of their life in the, the mid... My, when I think of my grandparents... Because, uh-huh. again, I only had one one set of grandparents... <laughs> For most of my life, because of specifically the this. attitude that this movie is glorifying. Yes. Yeah. <coughs> um, they were from Germany, probably spent most of their life in the Midwest, but they were always German. I, I, I love the way that the movie is selling the myth 
to me, a person who's lived so much life in it. Um, and I love because it is so committed to it. It feels like it undoes it. And I don't think it's the movie's intention, but, and, and also, and also the thing, the thing that like we've touched on briefly, but I want to really underscore it. I think that like, um, Richard Farnsworth, I think his performance in this movie is fucking incredible. I think yeah. like him as an actor in this movie is amazing. I think that the the material, I think that the people that Lynch finds for this movie, I I think I think Lynch's greatest talent is casting, you know? Um uh like I ju- I there's nothing else to add to that. I think the David Lynch's greatest strength as a director is casting and um Richard Farnsworth is incredible in this movie um you know Everett McGill gets one scene and he kills it Sissy Spacek is so good in this movie um and you know all the just like incidental people like Alvin's neighbor the the gal who's just you know sunbathing on the lawn um she's just perfect you know and I just um and so it's like, like there's the the critical brain in me that's firing on all c- cylinders about what the fuck is happening in this fantasy land that does not exist, you know. Um, and 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 also, you know, reptile brain that's just like, ooh, pretty pictures, ooh, good acting, ooh, good script, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. Because because like, even as I'm aware that this is stupid, I think that the scene of Richard Farnsworth and the other old guy sitting at the bar and Richard Farnsworth has got his milk and the other guy has got his beer and neither of them talking are talking about their problems with alcoholism because God forbid that anybody ever talked about their problems with alcoholism. We just have to dance around it. This is why I am the way that I am, you know. <laughs> I, I, I... Nora gets after me so much because um, I don't say what I want, but I I say it by being coy, and she doesn't always pick up on it. And I like sometimes I don't understand how she doesn't pick up on it. And this movie is like, yeah, that's a midwestern thing. The way in which I am coy feels midwestern, you know. I anyway, I'm, I got sidetracked. The scene where they're talking about their alcoholism and their their experiences as veterans, um. It's just a good scene, you know? Um, even if it, the things that it's about are bizarre. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just, like, you know, well shot, well acted. Um, the set's great, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, truly, like, cause I thought it was really well directed and acted and, like, the cinematography is great. The Angelo Badalamenti track is great. Um... And so there's also this... And Angelo wrote <clears throat> one song for this movie and called it a day. <laughs> yeah, and it's great. Um, and so I just, I watch the movie, but then I see, like, the things I love about David Lynch mm-hmm. applied to the Disney emotional movie. Mm-hmm. Like, script, story, you know? Yeah. Um... And again, there's just a way that it like, for me, lessens David Lynch's work. 
Yeah. There's a way that this movie makes me feel like other David Lynch stuff that I enjoy is kind of just smoke and mirrors and the like the there's other stuff happening that's more interesting in those movies mm-hmm. but I just am now like doubting that stuff more cuz yeah. I'm like the yeah. man smoking mirrors the man yeah. the man is like some pretty shots of some landscape with some really good music under it and you just get some good fucking actors who are doing some good fucking character actor work I read that book a year ago, and now I feel validated. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this is what I figured out when I read the book. <laughs> well, I have good news as far as that goes. All of your feelings that you're feeling now, maybe it makes you like Blue Velvet less. Maybe it makes you like Twin Peaks less. Wild at Heart is impervious, because Wild at Heart is about some other shit. <laughs> He can't take Wild at Heart yeah, from Wild you. Wild at Heart's great. Um, I mean, Twin Peaks is still great just as... A, the thing that I've always loved about Twin Peaks is that it's a soap opera. And it's yes. still a fucking great soap yes. opera. Um, and and as M put eloquently on Twitter the other day, he just... He took the juice and he poured it from the soap opera cup into the prestige <laughs> TV cup, but it's the same juice. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, that prestige TV cup is is the soap opera cup is remember how you used to go to pizza hut and you get the collector's cup that was plastic and it had that weird rubbery plastic that smelled bad as a topper uh-huh. uh and it was like yoda mm-hmm. and now you buy a glass like pint glass to put your beer in and it has a picture of yoda engraved on it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely because the soap opera turned into prestige TV by putting it, like, making it glass and engraving on it instead of having it made out of plastic. It, <laughs> Twin Beaks The Return is is the Dune Fleshlight Cup. <laughs> we got some questions. You want to answer some questions? Yeah. Oh, do we want to quick give this an F for stairs? <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't think there's any stairs. I mean, Unless that hill counts, I guess. No, a hill doesn't count as stairs. A hill does not count as stairs. Um. We got Twitter questions that this man, time. I mean, I guess he has to walk up some stairs to get to, to, um, Harry Dean Stanton's place, but it's not many in. Yeah. We, uh, um. It feels more in that place where we've ruled that sometimes the porch isn't stairs. We It doesn't feel like stairs. We took questions on Twitter because I tweeted like two hours before we started recording. If people want us to take questions on Twitter more often, let me know. If people want us to take questions on co-host, let me know. Um, usually on Twitter, I, I don't always, like, I usually don't include the email, but I do tweet out what the next movie is going to be. Obviously, we say it on the podcast, too, so people can yeah. always yeah. write in with just whatever the movie is, but yeah, I can we can try to do better at, like... Doing a specific call. Yeah. Um, but you'll listen to the non-homophobia What I zone. should do is, because when the movie comes, like, when the episode comes out, I do, like, a tweet of, like, this is the episode. And then I do a tweet of, like, here's the next movie we're watching. A week later, it goes in the public feeds. I should do a quote tweet that is of the main tweet being, like, 
this is now in the public feeds. You can find it here. Also, quote tweet, like, this is the next movie we're doing. We record in like a week. If you want to send us questions, send them here. If you listen to our last episode and you listen to the non-homophobia zone, that's for you coming up for us. We've already recorded. Um, I, I think it is just all of that adds up to broadly. I am trying to recommit myself to podcasting and stairwells and, um, I'm having some troubles with it, but, um, this feels, you know, I feel, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling better, you know? Yeah. Anyway, um, and, and part of recommitting myself is, um, you know, doing the promotion, doing the audience engagement stuff, because that's the most rewarding part of it, uh, even if it's hard. <laughs> it's the hardest part, even if talking to all of you who listen to the podcast uh, is my favorite part. It is the most difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's also hard because, like, just when you don't get it, it sucks. Yeah. And that's not, like, necessarily on other people, but... Or, or it's like, if I don't get the engagement, I feel bad. But then also, if I get three questions, and then next week I also got three questions, I'd be like, well, why isn't it four questions? I'm ha- I have the thing that YouTubers complain about all the time, except that only, like, a hundred people listen to these podcasts. Or yeah. so. Probably more than a hundred, but probably not by much. Anyway. Um, Crystal sent in two tweets. What's the best movie to watch in a car? I made you so mad with my answer. It wasn't mad, it was just, like... So, um, I used to go on road trips a lot because my mom lived in Kansas City my stepdad lived in Phoenix we had family out in Carroll County which is about three hours two two hours away from Kansas City you know we would go when we were in Phoenix maybe we'd go up north to see the Four Corners the Grand Canyon or Flagstaff I love Flagstaff it's one of the most beautiful places in the country we drove around a lot. We'd drive from from Kansas City to Phoenix, you know. Dad loved taking road trips. Uh, my mom had for me this little um, portable DVD player, because we didn't have iPads back then. <laughs> and so it was... But you did have DVDs back then. Yes, we did. It was, I'm going to say, maybe like a one foot by one foot square, I would guess, um, that was kind of like, kind of like a laptop, and you would pop open the disc tray, and you'd put your movie in, and then you had a couple little screens, and there was like a little, a couple little buttons, and then there was a screen, and you could watch your DVDs that way, and you could even plug it in to charge in the car. Um... In those days, I owned probably, like, you know, five or six DVDs. We'd rent DVDs all the time, but I didn't own that many DVDs, and the collection of DVDs that I owned as a kid was fucking weird. And so I remember many road trips watching Daddy Daycare, Spaceballs, um, uh, uh, um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, I watched, I've watched Daddy Daycare many times, 
the the Steve Martin Cheaper by the Dozen. That was one of the ones that got watched on the road a lot. Don't know why. <laughs> Do not understand why. <laughs> of the like six DVDs I owned, Cheaper by the Dozen was one of them. Um, but yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, I don't know if I've ever actually watched a movie in a car ever in my life. Oh, you know what I watched on my laptop in a car? I watched a little bit. So, uh, my, one of my brothers, at least at one time, it had like a van where there's like the screens in the, the back for the kids. You like put in a DVD and then it'll like play for the kids in the back. There's like two screens on like the back of the seats or whatever. Um, and there was a time where I briefly rode in that van for some reason. And they had been watching um, Zootopia. So I once watched like 10 minutes of Zootopia in the car. I think that's the only movie watching I've ever done in a car. That's so weird. But like, especially when I was at the age where we were like road tripping and stuff, it was like um, cassettes into the, the CD player that you have plugged into like the cassette adapter uh-huh. and you have it on a pillow so it won't skip or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're listening to music that way as a group. And I'm probably like reading or playing Game Boy as long as there's the light that I can actually see the Game Boy because it's always a concern back in the day with Game Boy. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like maybe towards the tail end of me doing stuff in the car, it was maybe, uh, Game Boy Advance, but also I get motion sick. Um, famously I once vomited at the start of a trip and it was just all over the backseat and my, my brothers who were on the trip had to sit on like up on the chairs. Oh no. Uh -oh. Oh, no. Um, I'm old enough that I don't think car seats were required I, when I was a kid. I didn't get motion sick as a kid ever, but, like, in the last three or four years, it's gotten bad. It's, <clears throat> with, as, the more I use a smartphone, the more often I get motion sick. And when yeah. I was in my most road-tripping phase of my life, I didn't have a smartphone, you know? Yeah. But um, I would read sometimes, I would play games sometimes, um, but also not for extended periods of time. Also, it often be dependent on if I could lay down across, like, a van seat mm-hmm. as a kid, and then I would have, like, the book or the Game Boy or whatever, and I'd be looking up out the window at the thing, so I would see, like, you know, the... Uh, electric poles or whatever whipping by to you. I feel mm-hmm. like I did better that way. And I was like laying down and you're like feeling more of the rocking like yeah. that way rather than sort of sitting up. I um I yeah, did it was, I mean it was mostly music. We we just listened to music on road trips and we played road trip games, you know? Yeah. One of the ones was uh Well well hold on to your road trip game thought because that's gonna be another question we have here. Okay. So uh, real quick, one last road movie story is I remember when my mom's mom, um, who I love very dearly, uh, Grandma Pete, um, like just an incredibly important important person in my life. Um, her death came as somewhat of a surprise. You know, we knew she was on the decline, but it was just like, 
you know, it, it, it happened one night and there was no way we could have known. We were, we were at the Grand Canyon because we were just out there for a family trip. And we get the call in the morning. And so we have to drive back to Phoenix to get our things and then drive to, um, uh, fucking, uh, Carroll County, um, for the funeral because, um, for whatever unholy reason, funerals in, in Missouri have to happen within, like, 48 hours of the person dying. I don't fucking understand why, but, so, there was a, there was a time where we drove, like, 22 hours, like, straight. Like, we had to get there as soon as possible. We did not stop for the night. And so I was 15 or 16. I was a little too young. I, I could drive, but I wasn't supposed to be driving on this trip, you know? Um, And so I was staying up to keep my mom up. And so I was <laughs> I watched two movies on my laptop, I remember. I watched The Amazing Spider-Man, the Andrew Garfield movie. Which is fucking dog shit. <laughs> and then the other one I watched was... Um, I always remember the first time I saw Inception, my dad and I saw it together. And we walked out and we were like, people like that? And then I watched Inception again on this trip to the funeral. Thinking, I don't know, people like it. Maybe it's good. No. Inception still fucking blows. Yeah. And that's the last time I'm ever going to watch Inception in my life. I just don't need to see it again. It yeah. blows. Yeah. Um, we have another question here from Crystal. What are the highlights of Canadian cinema? What do you appreciate about Canadian culture? Girl, I don't know. Fucking all those CW uh, DC shows. <laughs> um, there's a pretty good... um. Canadian movie I saw in um, a film class once. Uh, I'll be damned if I can remember the name, but it's like um, these people who have to um, who live on a reservation and um, get by by like smuggling things across the border um, on the reservation um, because it, there's sort of a gray area in the law. But the way they have to do it is by, like, crossing this, like, lake that's frozen over. And so they can only do it in the depths of winter, basically. Um, this is a pretty good movie. Someone will probably know what I'm talking about. It's a semi-well-known thing. Yeah. Um, other Canadian cinema I love, uh, Scott Pilgrim um, Takes Off. <laughs> Canadian culture I appreciate. Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> um, you know what Canadian culture I appreciate? What? Matchmaker, which you can buy in stores now, um, written and drawn by uh, Cam Marshall. I think I kind of like about Canadian culture is how, like, in and of itself, like, within America, just, like, the, the way that exists, like, there's lots of, I think it's, like, this especially with music, there's, like, musicians that are, like, American. They're from, like, Canada. Mm. Right? And it's just, like, this kind of... And it's all, like, this certain style of pop, I feel like, too, that I, like, really associate being, like, 
this kind of part of Amer- like ca- Canadian culture that's become a part of just broader American culture that makes Canada just feel like America's girl next door. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, like, <clears throat> isn't like Avril Lavigne from Canada or something? Probably. I know, like, um, what Justin Bieber is Canadian. I assume that Crystal is asking this because Crystal and my wife Nora have been watching a lot of Northern Lion lately, who is a Canadian streamer. Uh, and Nora was showing me a Northern Lion clip where he was talking about um, some Canadian songs that have gotten big in America, like way later. Like, Life is a Highway was a huge hit in Canada for like years and years, and then Cars made it a big hit in America too, and it's not even like the original version. Um,. I assume that is why Crystal is asking about this. Um, anyway, my biggest encounter with Canadian culture is when I lived in the Upper Peninsula. So sometimes there's like these memes that will go around that's like, uh, there's different versions of it that are, but they're basically like the Lower Peninsula of Michigan is the United Kingdom. And then like Wisconsin is Ireland and the Upper Peninsula is Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it's like kind of funny because it's obviously it's like, there's there's a certain amount of history there too the way stuff got divided and everything. You you quote tweeted it the other day that's like oh I guess I'm from Wales. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like from R- Wales. Went to I forget like which town in the like in England uh-huh. like in middle school or I think I said secondary school because that would be <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I lived for a while. Uh, like went to like grad or to undergrad. Um. Up in northern Canada, like in Belfast, because they had like Belfast, like right where Marquette is. Right. Um, and then after that, I think I moved to Berlin because <laughs> like they didn't have like Chicago and, and Illinois on the map. Yeah. But also, I feel like Chicago is Berlin. <laughs> I just feel that Chicago's Berlin. My, my, and I'm not just saying this because Mark, uh, Mark Twain agreed with me, but Mark Twain did agree with me, and we're talking about American dreams and American myth here, so. There are two things that I know about Berlin. One is, um. My who, family's from there. <laughs> Maybe there's three things here. <laughs> um, Nora's grandmother is from Berlin. Um, uh, the, culturally like attitudinally about berlin i guess i know wings of desire um but the main thing i think of when i think of berlin right now is the uyen tiktoks uyen being the girl with the german boyfriend um yeah who's like just making tiktoks about being like a fish out of water in germany um all the time i love her uh and she always portrays berlin in her videos as like bangs leather jacket Black lipstick, sunglasses, very chic. Um, and the other thing I think of is, um, um, fuck, Wings of Desire knocked this one out of my mind. Um, fuck, I thought about Wings of Desire and forgot the other thing. Ron Lola Ron. Oh, 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 oh. Um, someone who I'm not going to put on blast on this podcast by name, but like, if you if you follow this person on Twitter, they're a friend of ours, and you can probably put this together. Someone I know has been going to Berlin with some regularity over the last two months and doing a lot of party drugs and uh, uh, getting into hijinks. 
this person is probably listening to the podcast and knows who they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I know about Berlin is is someone I know getting really into drugs they couldn't even identify, apparently. <laughs> Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I do know people that moved to Chicago and started taking drugs they couldn't identify. <laughs> anyway, my biggest connection with Canadian culture is to, to return to the whole... Oh, right. That's why we were talking Northern about Northern Ireland this. thing. The part where it breaks down is that if you talk to people on the Upper Peninsula, they don't want to be a part of Wisconsin, and they don't want to be a part of Michigan. They want to be a part of Canada. Mm-hmm. And because of just proxy, you are closer to, to Canada than basically any place else that would have broadcasting. So people in the Upper Peninsula watch a lot of Canadian TV. Mm-hmm. So I've watched a lot of specifically Corner Gas mm-hmm. in my time. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, uh, I believe, Saskatch- uh, Saskatchewan show, uh, where they also have the thick, like, uh, Canadian accent that's very similar to the Uber accent. There are distinctions. Um, so yeah, I've watched a lot of Corner Gas and also other Canadian TV, but I especially think of Corner Gas because I watch so much of it. So, um, our next question on this list is probably a longer answer. Um, so it's the car games one. So I'm going to skip to the question after it, which is going to be a short answer. Which tractor company are you trusting to make a working GM when Xeon inevitably invades the Earth sphere? John Deere. Yeah. John Deere. I mean, their colors are a little bit more Zaku, but... I ain't getting in no Bobcat GM. (laughs) Yeah. I, yeah, it would be John Deere. Yeah. Pillar? Fuck out of here. <laughs> okay, from K. Hirsch. Y'all have any favorite car games to play on road trips? What was the last big road trip either of you have been on? Um, remember all those jokes about the beach that makes you old? Um, I, I, the beach that makes you old was like funny for 24 hours to me. I, I, I'm happy for everybody else who got a lot more mileage out of it. I, just, I don't even remember the beach that makes you old. There's an M. Night Shyamalan movie where people yeah. go on a beach and it makes you old. Yeah. I think it's I don't called, remember, like, Is it called Old? It. Yeah, I think it's called Old. Okay. Um, car games. <sighs> what, I, we mostly played I Spy, and then we would talk. Yeah, I Spy is a classic. So the other card game, and this is truly... Uh, I was the youngest of five, um, and also... Brothers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Must be noted, I'm an only child, which is a big difference in car games between the two of us. An only child that was, like, at, went on road trips often, like, single-parented by either mom or dad, you know? So, like, there's only so much we can do when one of you has to be driving. Yeah. So, youngest of five, I have four brothers. One of the car games, which... Doesn't seem like it has that much legs, but does when you are four children in a car. Is you see businesses and then you just make like a crude version of the name. And of course, and evacuate. (laughs) And of course, there's like various, like, there's just standbys and you'll say them and sometimes they'll still get laughs. But like, there's also different versions. So like Taco Bell was both Taco Hell and Taco Smell. Mm-hmm. Anytime you'd see a Comfort in, you would shout out, Comfort in! 
Because <laughs> you're supposed to come in and fart. <laughs> it was just all stuff like that. Nora and I do this because... Pick Donald's was a big one. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Nora and I do this... Um, Booger King. The first time I went to um, see Nora in Texas, um, I don't know who started it, but we drove past a Burger King and one of us just goes, Burger Kurger. And now we just... It was a car thing for a while, and now it is seemingly a DoorDash thing, <laughs> where we just call restaurants by other names. Yeah. Like, we've, we've been ordering from Budlong Chicken, and Nora has taken it to calling it Everlong Chicken, and now today she called it Wonderwall, because she thought that she thought <laughs> that Wonderwall was by the Foo Fighters. Um, we, we call Jersey Mike's Skinny Penis. Yeah, that's the... You explained it to me once, and I still don't understand it. What up? It's your boy, Skinny Penis. <laughs> anyway, um, other car, car games. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the one where you call out a license plate mm-hmm. for a state that you're not in and that you haven't seen yet. Yeah. Yeah. Classic. And... When that happens, if there's like various rules, and I don't remember all of them right now, I think one of them is if you had actually seen that state and you said it, but on the lengthy road trip it had come up before, then you get punched. Yeah, slug bug. Yeah. Um, yeah, stuff like that. Obviously, anytime a semi goes by, you're cranking that arm trying to get this <laughs> semi to go. can't say as we ever did that one (laughs) um the thing about slug bug that was never any fun for me being an only child that was often accompanied by a single parent was that when i was with my mom i would slug my mom but my mom wouldn't ever slug me back she'd be like oh there's a beetle you know uh but she wasn't gonna punch me and when i was with my dad Dad would fucking wallop me. <laughs> that man would bruise my arm. <laughs> um, I feel like there are other. There's so many card games. Um, um, and then what was the other K question here? Um, uh, what was the last big road trip either of you've been on? I mean, when Nora and I went to visit my mom in uh, July or August, whatever it was, we drove up to Sedona. That was like. You know, two-hour drive there, and then we spent the day in town. That's not a road trip, but that was like the yeah. last. That was the last car trip I took. That was yeah, a that's the thing trip. of like, it like was- we will drive from Chicago to like where my parents are in Michigan, which is not a short drive, but I just yeah. This is this is America numbers. We 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 my, me- we measure distances with time and if the drive is like under 5 hours, it's normal. Yeah. My my dad moved my dad lived in uh Missouri and Kansas for most of my life, but he's moved to Michigan in the last couple of years. And like dad being 4 hours away, it's like, "Oh, it, it's it's kind of nice that dad's 4 hours away because it's like, oh, I can drive over and see him and it's a little day trip, you know?" Yeah. Um, like, I I don't typically I could drive there to see him and drive back in one day. I probably wouldn't. They do that to come see me. They'll drive back, you know, in the morning and drive back after lunch. I don't fucking get it. But 
to me, when I'm when I'm talking about a road trip, this is like true America vibes. A road trip is you get in the car and you start driving. And you stop for the night, and where you stop for the night is not the place that you're, like, yes. ultimately going. Yes, yes, yes. We would stop. You stop in- at just, so, you know, you don't even have an itinerary, probably, about where you're stopping. Because you're kind of just driving, and you hit a point where you're tired, and you stop, and you get, uh, you know. We would, we would you know, leave a from... Com- a come fart in. We'd leave from Kansas City, and... We would try to make it to Albuquerque because if you would make it all the way to Albuquerque, getting to Phoenix the next day wasn't so bad. But if you wanted to, you could stop in Santa Rosa if you were tired and you could just make the trip the the next day a little longer. And also Santa Rosa was a little nicer than Albuquerque. Um, There was just better food in Santa Rosa. Um, There is, you know, I remember a big trip I took with my dad where we didn't have a destination. Dad was like, we'll go down to Little Rock and then we'll go to Nashville and then we'll go to St. Louis and then we'll come home. Yeah. You know? Um, it was like five days. I think we stopped somewhere between Little yeah, Rock it's and the Nashville. Other, the other variation is you don't have one place that you're driving to and then driving back from. The whole point is you're just kind of driving around different places and staying places different yeah, nights. Yeah. I wish we did those more often, but because my family got so spread out, it ended up being more about driving to places, you yeah. know? But I think then, like, the last, what I would consider a road trip was senior year of undergrad, spring break, like my spring break, which was different than Emily's spring break. Right. I would drive from... Marquette, Michigan, all the way down to Savannah, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And, That's a road trip. Yeah. Um, and some there are some times where, uh, especially I think going there because I wanted to like have as much time seeing Emily as possible. Uh, I would drive all the way from. Like lower, like basically bottom of Lower Peninsula where my parents were. They've since moved, but Marshall, mm-hmm. Michigan. Drive there all the way to Savannah, which is insane. Yeah, that is fucking crazy. Um, I've never been to Georgia, but, and I think the I think it was the last two times I went. One time my roommate, I think, went with me, and then the other time, like. Not roommate, but, like, we lived in the same building. We were also friends. Mm-hmm. Went. I went... I went... Oh. And both of those, I insisted on driving the entire time, because it was, like, my car and stuff. I just... Mm-hmm. Um, but I at least had somebody who was, like, keeping me company, so it was probably less dangerous than the other times I did it. And I think we were more inclined to stop. I guess... Um... I re- I remember the last road trip I took. I'm pretty sure. Um, no, 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 no. Okay, okay. I'm getting this straight in my head. I really like to road trip from Chicago to Dallas one of these days. It hasn't ever made sense because getting getting that amount of time off from work when I was at Starbucks was just not doable. But um, it probably will be with my new job. Hopefully, so maybe that's a thing we could do because I I would enjoy that. Um. But I went down from St. Louis to Dallas 
twice, once before Nora and I were married and once after we were married. Um, and then there's another road trip in between those two things that I will not even mention where we went to or why, because it is extremely traumatic. <laughs> Um, but I just, that is probably other than one of the Dallas trips, the most recent trip I took, uh, and more, more traumatic than going to see my grandma's funeral. So, you know, yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, I feel like since then that, that the, the trauma one was immediately pre COVID. And then the most recent Dallas trip was like right after the vaccines rolled out. So, you know, COVID's cut down on the road tripping considerably. Yeah. Um, I think I also just, there was a point where when I was at, like, like when I was going into undergrad, you would have just time off from school. Yeah. Where, like, it was easy to, like, choose to road trip rather than fly or something. And then once I sort of got a job, like, again, like you're saying, like, it's just hard. If you're taking time off to go someplace, I'm now in this position where even if it costs more money, like, time is the thing that I have less of than money than when I was younger. Yeah. And so it's like, makes more sense to fly somewhere if it's going to be a ways. And then, like, you know, in have the actual time to enjoy the place that I want to go visit yeah. and then fly back. That's the that's the thing is if we're going to Dallas, what I want to do is see Omi, is see, you know, Devin and Becky, is I guess see fucking Frank. Um and so I would like to fly there so that we have time with those people much as I would enjoy the drive from Chicago to Dallas. Yeah. But I feel like with a kid at some point, there'll probably be a more of a driving someplace, just because I think that's... Yeah, yeah, you'll probably drive uh, your kiddo around because it's like a good childhood experience, you know? Yeah. You two are big on, you know, providing life experiences for your child. I don't fucking get it, but whatever. <laughs> what a weird... <laughs> what a what a dumb bit you decided to do. I just I I had a moment um with the musical today where I was like I don't want to be in this musical for fucking children. Um and, and I joked to you I was like you're giving your kid an appreciation of the performing arts because in my head I'm like fucking musicals for children fuck this. <laughs> I'm like wait it's good for the child to go see live performances. Why am I being yeah. an asshole right now? Yeah. I mean, it was a mid musical. I had fun. I had I had more fun in the second half when I put in my noise canceling headphones. Not because I didn't want to hear the music, but because the the sound mixing at this musical was really fucking bad. Yeah. Uh, the mics were too loud, and the music was still louder, where you couldn't hear what people were saying. Sometimes, yes, it was weird. I could I could understand what people were saying once I'd put in my headphones, yeah, because it felt like this is the volume that the show should have been at. Yeah. Um. Anyway, next time we are watching the clan's heir is a trans woman. We should get the year and the director on that. Yeah. Um, somebody mentioned that this is on archive.org, 
Shout out to whoever did that. The Daime wa new half. Um, 2013. 2013. Did we catch the director there? Um, no. I do like that it's specifically the clan's heir is a new half. Um, Hitoshi Ozawa. Here, just click on his letterbox page. What are you doing? Stop that. Okay, we don't know any of these movies. You haven't seen any of these obscure Japanese movies, so I yeah, definitely. I mean, haven't. so part of the thing is like some of the stuff looks like it's like two thousands, uh, like some Yakuza stuff, like Men in the Underground. Here, this seems like some, but the thing is, like, I sometimes watch stuff that's like more recent Yakuza stuff, but also when I have that itch to watch something that's like a Yakuza thing, it's like. Something from the 70s, 80s, or 90s is going to, like, scratch that itch. And there's so much of it that why yeah. would you bother watching a more recent movie? But, like, just look at this and we're like, yeah, that's... Uh, this Blood Brothers yeah. movie looks sick. Show Aikawa is right there. Like, yeah. Yeah. Which one's Show Aikawa? I know the I know the name. What's he been in? He's, uh, Dead or Alive. Okay. Um, right, okay. He was also... Uh, is, is he the... Um, He's a detective in something. Click on him. I I know this face. Yeah. Oh, Pulse. Pulse. He's like an employee in it, but God, we should really watch Gozu at some point. What's? Oh, I haven't seen Gozu. I'm thinking of Jigoku. Yeah. Um. Oh, Serpent's Pass and uh, Eyes of the Spider is the one where he's in it. And then wait, this... wait, wait, hold up. Is this the first Yakuza video game? here um but, oh no this is a film adaptation yeah by me okay um, should i watch that that sounds rad <laughs> sure uh um, what's gozu i think i i, I briefly explained Gozu. let's see what it says here um just to see if this is going to convey any of it. Minami mistakenly kills a gangster associate of his named brother. Almost as soon as the murder takes place, the body of the deceased man is gone, prompting Minami to conduct a search. While looking, he finds a mysterious isolated hotel where he decides to take a rest. Not only are the front desk clerks a bit strange, but even the ambiance feels unusual. Minami soon realizes he may have gotten more than he bargained for. This sounds um, good. We should watch this. So you know how Yakuza movies have this, like, weird homoeroticism to them? Yeah. Um, Gozu includes the brother that he has a weird homoeroticism in, um, like, becoming a woman. Okay, okay. And they okay. have sex. Okay. From the man who brought you audition. Man, audition fucking slams. We um... Uh, okay, I know I'm adding, like, four Mike movies on this list right now. We legit should do, if you're open to it, because you've seen it a couple times now, we should do The Happiness of the Katakuris on the podcast, because I want to see it, and I have not pushed myself into it yet. Yeah. And so we should just go ahead and do it for the podcast to sort of, like, or if you don't want to, just be like, you know, you have to watch this by the end of February, something like that. You, If you don't want to do it for the podcast, I would totally understand. Yeah. 
Uh, happiness in the Gala Curry is great, though. Um, I'm also going to put on here, go to. Uh, put on They Live by Night. Um, and there was one other one we just looked at that looked good. It was probably another Mike one, so don't. Uh, were you going to say audition? or? No, we don't need to do audition. Audition's um, super good. <laughs> or you just mean how you want to watch the Like a Dragon movie? Oh, yeah, I just want to watch that Like a Dragon movie. We don't have to do that for the yeah. podcast. Um, If we're going to watch a adaptation of a Yakuza thing like that, I would just want us to do Crying Freeman, because I've not seen it, and I bet it would be fun. Oh, yeah, who directed the Crying Freeman adaptation? Mm. Who's in that? I want to know who's in the Crying Freeman movie. Um... Oh, oh, we were talking to Rick. Rick wanted to come on and do something recently. Yeah. This is an American movie? Uh, I think so. It's weird. Were we texting I Rick mean, the... online or on Discord? I have no idea. Probably Discord. Rick and Nora, Rick and Manovsky, many group chats. Rick and Mark. <laughs> um, maybe it was online. Let me. See. Uh, Autumn, Neve, Schoener, and Rick. Um, we're doing cages in March. What did I say? Schoener. What did I say? You said Schoener. Oh, that's stupid. Why would I say that? Um. Oh, Rick was going to do Mr. Freedom. Oh, yeah. Which I'm excited about. <laughs> um. Anyway, we will be back to you. Um, the clan's heir is a trans woman. Yeah. And then... Maybe Pegasus soon. Maybe the Live by Night sooner. We, you know, we've got some good. We've got some good stuff on the list right now. Yeah. You know. Um. I'd love to do another Fossbender. I'd I'd love to go back to um. The the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. Now that I've seen Carell, because you know I um I really wanted to see that. I just felt like I didn't want. The, the, I wanted to see the the weirder movie before we got into what I assume is a more realistic movie. Yeah. You know? Um, this, the, the two graveyards of honor, are like a thing where we do one and the other. And then I also think that before we watch Lola, we should watch The Blue Angel. Oh, yeah, I believe yeah, yeah. they're related. Yeah. I'm trying to remember I, exactly how. But. Yeah. We've got some good things on the list right now. I'm excited yeah. about this. I, 2024 is going to be a good year once we get our feet under us, which I think maybe yeah. we have. I, I'm I'm committing myself. I will watch at least one movie before our next episode. Yeah, I'll try and watch something. If, if we, depending on how long I don't have Adderall, maybe I will watch something at work so that I can focus on work. Which is a weird thing to say, but since you've got your trip coming up, you've got you got we'll figure it out. Cause we might not be able to make blades work this week. Because you've got... Oh, I mean, extra... I'm not expecting Blades in the Dark to be a weekly thing. I wasn't either. Yeah. But, like, we did it two weeks back-to-back, -back, partially because you had 
extra ghost diver stuff coming up. And so I would like to do at least one more stairwells before your Florida trip. Yeah. But Which we can do. We just have to figure out what weeks. The the when we can watch and when we can record. Yeah. So we'll do that after the show. Um, where can people find you? You find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find me on co-host autumnal coffee no underscore. Um I've been watching Hella Dimension 20, and so I haven't been choasting much, but maybe I'll get back to reading X-Men and choasting about X-Men in the future. Um, you can catch the Finder episode of Coffee and Comic Books, uh, hopefully this week, because I, I've done the hard part now. I've lined up the audio, um, and then I just realized I should take a shower and go to bed um, when I had done that. So now all i got to do is a little extra typing sounds I want to mute in that episode, so it'll take me, like, an extra 15 minutes more than usual, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, not not bad at all. So I will try what, to get that up tomorrow. When can people catch you finishing Nana? Probably roughly a week before Ghost Tires <laughs> records the last Nana episode. Oh, you're so mad at me right now. <laughs> you can find me at Fox Omnia on Twitter, uh, Blue Sky, uh, co-host, Letterboxd, Annie List, Basically anything Backlogged. that I'm on, but also basically just Twitter. That's the only place I'm like actively posting. Hey, hey, if anybody knows what I was supposed to put on Goodreads, I was supposed to put Aragon on Goodreads and I didn't. That's what it was. I was I've just given up on Goodreads. I fucking hate Goodreads. I hate Goodreads too. And don't tell me about Storygraph. I know about Storygraph. I use Goodreads um, because... I want to keep track of the books I read, and that's the only way I'm going to do it. So, I don't. Uh, I don't listen to my other podcasts, Ghost Divers, where we're talking about Nana. Yeah. Um, Go listen. Bonner and Shirataro and Hachimitsu Boy. We're talking about Karate High School and Arisa Ravencroft. Go listen to Dragon Readers. You can find it by going to exportaud.io um, and giving us a dollar to get it early, or exportaud.io slash exportaudio to get it in the free feed a week late. Um, uh, Dragon Readers is really good. I rec- I spent this week, I caught up on Dragon Readers, and I caught up on uh, Around the Long Fire, and two very, very good podcasts. Dragon Go Readers listen is, to Around the Long Fire. Dragon Readers is way better than Around the Long Fire. There's a really annoying host on um Around the Long Fire. Go listen just, to Around the Long Fire. I just Fire, skip to the parts where Em's A talking. place where we talk about sagas, because we've decided to just call everything a saga now. Um, And also Nerissa Ravencroft. I'm going to finally read Beowulf. I'm going to probably read two translations because I want to read the one that you're reading for the podcast. But also, I found out there's the the Seamus Heaney translation has a George Guidal recorded books one. And uh, I love George Guidal. I will listen to any audiobook he does. So that's not true. He does a lot of Vince Flynn books. I'm not reading Vince Flynn books. Remember when he said we'd be done by 10? That was a joke. That was a that was a joke. It is midnight. Still just wanted to point it out. We've been recording for three hours. I knew I knew it was gonna be a three hour episode. I knew. I, I intended for it to be a three hour episode. The ten thing was a joke. I did not connect the dot in my head from three hour episode to It is midnight. Nanahachi is. Not a hot cheese room.
Shadowheart Carlac is real. I'm proud of that.
phone away or recording? I'm texting. <laughs> you just do this to me all the time. I know. <laughs> and I'm no selling it. <laughs> uh, I don't even know where my phone is. My phone's probably still in the bed. Because you were, like, getting coffee and stuff, and I was tired. Yeah. Uh, drink check. You we're got... doing drink checks now? Well, I just noticed that you had two cans of liquid death around here. I mean, I was... this is from... Uh... Ghost Divers? Ghost Divers. And that also. Okay. I just need to... Is that, is that your... Tonight's <clears throat> liquid death? Yeah. Okay. Um, and I also have my... Uh, tablet. My hydration tablet thingy. Okay. Not your iPad? It's electrolytes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I iPad? Got... It's a tablet joke. Oh. It's a joke about a tablet? I got the last of the coffee. Um, it's 9 p.m. I've got some water. Um, hi, everybody. Welcome to the non-homophobia zone. How have you been? Uh, I mean, the last two days I've been tired and, uh, so I have ADHD. I've been on Adderall. <laughs> There's just like constantly an Adderall shortage. I probably need to like call up the pharmacy, except I feel like, I mean, I know that like the way that Walgreens is running things is awful. There's like the talk of the potential strike and stuff. Oh, I don't know about this. Um, and it's like, there's a lot of like. Basically, there's, like, increasing amounts of pressure and expectation put on the pharmacists at, like, CVS, Walgreens, stuff like that. What is the... <clears throat> Listen, I, I I read it about this, like, months ago, so I don't have, like... I'm not asking yeah. you. I'm just sort of asking broadly, and I know the answer is capitalism. What is the pressure that they could be putting on these people? Their job is to give the medicine that is prescribed. Yeah, but, I mean, it's, like... Part of it is just, obviously, they're understaffing as much as possible. Well, yeah, yeah, obviously. As everything does. Yes. <clears throat> uh, or a lot of things do. Yeah. Um, Listen, I just got out of Starbucks. I know how that goes. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's especially common in things that are going to be more customer-facing, retail-focused kind yeah. of stuff. Because, um, one, there's usually just, like, a larger, like, like my job has five like large distribution centers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So like management is like like upper level management is constantly around the lower level people. And so I think just has not saying that there aren't like lots of pressures put on people still at times, but like it's different than the like really distributed then you have somebody in like an office that just doesn't even in their day to day interact with like the average barista or right. whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you also have the thing of, especially a lot of that customer service focused stuff, there's like the doing good customer service and then there's like the being efficient and those things are kind of at odds and you have to yes. like constantly balance it. Yes. And they're like, well, this one store had like really excellent like right. sales and this one store had great customer satisfaction and it's like, yeah. yeah. And then they like set really <sighs> weird arbitrary metrics based on that. I mean, just speaking anyway. anecdotally, like, cause I go to Walgreens for my hormones and I go to CVS for some other stuff because I've been too lazy to tell one of my doctors to just start sending it to the CVS close to me. Anyway. Um, so anecdotally, I know that like it used to be that there would always be two pharmacists around. 
so that when one of them took a break, the pharmacy yeah. didn't just close. But now I've noticed that, like, I cannot go to the pharmacy at certain times of day. Like, the the all the pharmacies in the area kind of close somewhere in the, like, 11 to 2 range for 30 minutes because the pharmacist takes a lunch break. And there used to be two pharmacists so that when one of them took a break, the other could... And, you know, obviously yeah. there are pharmacy techs around, but they... The, the pharmacy can't be open if the pharmacist isn't there for legal reasons. Yeah. It's um, just absurd, you know? You should just pay to have two pharmacists there. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and I know, like, I read a thing that was going into all the stuff where it's, like, like there's stuff where they're, like, requiring pharmacy. They were doing a bunch of, like, speed training pharmacy techs to do immunizations because they wanted to, like get a bunch of the money from immunization stuff as well. Uh, Because normally they wouldn't be able to, but then, like, a lot of that stuff was done shoddy. There's a lot of stuff about, like, the way that they changed it, including, like, going to, like, one pharmacist. And there was, like, a shift where there's, like, uh, more of a focus, I think, on, like, like if you're a tech, you don't actually know what story you're going to be at most of the time. Like, it, like, moves constantly. Oh, huh. And so like, you're not, like, just regularly at the same place all the time, and so you don't have, like... That's some hot bullshit. Yeah, there's, like, a bunch of... There's a bunch of weird stuff. Yeah. Anyway, my main pharmacist... Like, my main pharmacy that I... I like, Walgreens that I call. Anytime I call, I just feel like I'm constantly on the phone and I don't get someone... Um, because phones is also a very easy thing to just kind of like not pick up or to just like turn off. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. When you're, when you're swamped. Um, so I'm not like blaming the pharmacy people. I'm mad at Walgreens, the corporation about it. Yeah. But it does mean that the only times I've had luck with like finding ways, like I went into Walgreens once to pick up medication for my child and was like, Hey, I, I know you're probably still out of Adderall, but I just want to, like, check in on stuff. And they're like, oh, we do currently have stock of, like, a different dosage. If you get, like, the the your psychiatrist has to write the specific mm-hmm. amount for us to be able to dose it because it's a controlled substance. But then, like, you know, I, I normally do two 10 milligrams. And so it's like, we can give you once a day 20 milligrams and you can cut it. Right. And split it up that way. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Anyway. I ran out, like, this is my day two without it. Um, the I only had, like, a half dose on Thursday, which was Imbolg. So mm-hmm. that was really, like, Imbolg is just a, a bunch of cleaning for me, and so I was just moving around a lot. Is it, It's a good day to taper off in some way. Yeah, because it's like, I don't have to, I'm, like, just actively kind of cleaning and moving around, and I have, like, a little schedule of the stuff that I wanted to get done and stuff. Yeah. And so... I didn't feel it quite as much, but then, yeah, like, I was back at work on Friday, and I was just like, uh, and the last few days have been like, I just become aware of when I, like, I'm unmedicated ADHD, like, my ability to understand passage of time is, like, fucked. Mm-hmm. Um, there are just times where, like, even people will be having a conversation, and I just become aware of, like, the last thing that I actually, like, felt present for and was processing was, like seemingly minutes ago conversation has moved and it's like i just my brain like dropped out yeah and i feel like especially i'm like at the very beginning of just not being on adderall so i'm like extra tired and just extra disorganized Mm -hmm. so um, i don't know i've been um i was trying to read today but it was in the car because we went to a children's musical Mm -hmm. with my kid um and 
Uh, Emily was listening to Aqua while driving because she loves listening to 90s dance club hits and especially Aqua. Um, and I was just like, there's no way my brain can process words mm. while also Aqua is happening right now. Right. So, <clears throat> Catching up on ALF, because um, I, I, I caught up on ALF this week. That was one of my... I caught up on Dragon Readers and ALF. I'm behind on all my friends' podcasts except those two, um, which I'm kind of at peace with because... Um, Whatever I make, I'm listening to audiobooks and stuff right now more. Um, but catching up on Alf, I'm like, the more you two talk about ADHD, the more I am certain I have it, and certain that like medication would help me. But I don't, I don't know that my, I have my shit together enough to want to deal with the Adderall treadmill, especially yeah. with I take three pills a day for Crohn's. I take a pill every day for hormones. I do one shot every week for hormones. I do another shot um, every four weeks for Crohn's. Um, there's one pill, mercaptopurine, allopurinol, vitamin D, Lexapro. I take Lexapro, Lexapro <laughs> for my depression that I don't know if I need to adjust the dose or what. I've been... Nora and I had a really, really good mental health talk this week um, that, like... There's a, there's a lot of stuff that's just, like, between her and me. Just, like, yeah. home stuff that's just, like, you know, um, I'm not going to bring up on the podcast. But, like, the part that's, like, relevant to the podcast is, I think, like, a 75%, like, depression thing. And maybe, like, a 25%, like, unmedicated ADHD thing. Where I've been, especially since I've been in the Baldur's Gate hyperfixation mode, you know? Yeah, I have been extremely resistant to doing anything. Really, I I canceled on coffee and comic books last week for almost no reason. You know, I was not feeling well that day, but like I could have played less Baldur's Gate on Saturday and felt better enough to be doing coffee and comic books on Sunday. We had a really good episode of coffee and comic books that Mark. Rick and I recorded a month ago that I have still not put out. Um, you and I, you've been trying to get me to watch The Straight Story for weeks on weeks on weeks, and I have been extremely resistant to it. You know, you'll just invite me over to be like, hey, do you want to play Ticket to Ride, a game I really enjoy playing? And I'll be like, no. Um... We started our Blades in the Dark game, and the last two sessions have been extremely fun. And then also, the the day, Thursday last week and Thursday this week, I spent the whole day thinking, how do I cancel so that I don't have to, like, talk to these people? Who, you, hanging out with you, Grace and Nora, has been extremely fun and fulfilling <laughs> and enjoyable. And I have just found myself, I think it's mostly a depression, a little bit ADHD. I'm starting to cry all of a sudden. I don't know why. Um, just like I have just been extremely resistant to doing basically anything <laughs> and it sucks. Yeah. And I, and, um, I watched a movie on, I guess it would have been Wednesday night. Um, partly because I was like, I cannot play like, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying Baldur's Gate is the problem, you know? Yeah. It's not that I'm not having fun. I think, so, there's a way that, like, Nora plays games 
which I think is fascinating, but is not what I do, Mm -hmm. which is Nora will make like eight different characters Mm -hmm. and be like playing all of them a little bit. Yeah. And there's like maybe some that she'll stick with more or whatever. Yeah. Rook is the one that's farthest along. Yeah. But she's back to playing Kess now. You know? Yeah. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen you do this. Maybe you've done this before with like I do Morrowind this with Morrowind. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I feel like even the times where I've known you playing Morrowind, it's like, oh, you're playing it again and you start a, a character. Yeah. Yeah. I used to do this. You're not actively doing multiple characters, whereas now you like have like three different darker drums that you started. Yes. In addition to your other characters. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I okay. Including here's, one of them being specifically. Here's where I'm at with it. Just to just to give you the breakdown. I have Villain, who is my half drow ranger. That was like my first big run. I think I had one more character before Villain, but there was like, oh, I'm I didn't really enjoy playing fighter or something like that. So I switched to Villain. She is into Act Three. I she's. Act 3 feels fucking massive. And so I have no gauge for how far she is into Act 3. She hasn't done any of the big confrontations, but I think all the seeds for the big confrontations have been laid. Um, You know, your Orin and your Gortash and, you know, whatever. I'm It's not a spoiler to say names of people who exist in the game, right? Whatever. So that's where Vlyn is. Then I started my Elric what? playthrough... It is uh, Gortesh, the guy who looks like he listens to Bauhaus yes. and lives in a van. Yes, yes. Okay. And he is somehow, <laughs> like, whatever. I don't... <laughs> he looks extremely greasy, but he's apparently, like, the president. <laughs> but he just looks greasy. <laughs> Um, so I got her to Act 3, and then I saw some of the Dark Urge stuff Nora had going on, and Valin is a very heroic character, and is not Dark Urge at all, and so I was like, you know what, I'm gonna start this, because I was also, I, I took a brief detour into Elric hyperfixation, I finished Stormbringer, which is the... We, we talked about Stormbringer. Well, I, fi- I finished it now. Yeah. I, th- I think my ranking is it's the second best Elric book, um, which I was not expecting going into that book. I really, really fucking love Stormbringer. Um, so I started my Elric playthrough, um, but it ended up being like too chaotic evil, which makes sense because Elric is chaotic. But like because D&D, Moorcock's multiverse is about law versus chaos. And law can be evil, and chaos can be evil. Law can be good, and chaos can be good. It's not about good versus evil, it's about law versus chaos. D&D is about yeah. good versus evil, you know? Yeah, Moorcock is Shimigami Tensei. Yes, though the nature of linear time is making you me pissed off at you <laughs> for how you said that just now, but yes. <laughs> um... And so, if you try to do a chaotic playthrough like Elric would be, um, 
you just end up murdering everybody. You just end up doing a, like Undertale genocide run, and I wasn't really enjoying that. So then I started another character, Dospira, who is a tiefling paladin, and she was going to try to resist the Dark Urge. And she was just kind of resisting it too much, and I just wasn't engaging with this thing I'd picked to do at all. So then I started Morel, who is my Dark Urge character that I'm actually going to stick with, I think. Because I have a better... She's like... She's like... Doesn't know how she feels yet about the Dark Urge. She's sort of like indulging in it sometimes. She's become an Oathbreaker Paladin, but she's got three levels of Warlock. She's going to have like seven levels of Paladin and five levels of Warlock by the end. Um, and so she's kind of like teetering between good and evil where she wants to help people but she's willing to do it in evil ways perhaps like she'll indulge the dark urge if she thinks she can bend it toward justice maybe you know that sort of thing um so i'm sticking with her but then i was really missing valin and instead of doing the thing that you might think i would do which is go back to playing valin instead i started to think about you know, when I played Villain, I really didn't know how the game worked at all. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know anything about D&D, basically, when I started. I did not know how 5th edition was played, period. End of story. Yeah. I could do so much better. I would make such different choices, character build-wise and, and story-wise, now that I kind of know how the game works. Really, what I should do is I should take six screenshots of all the sliders in the character creation menu... I should make a new villain on a higher difficulty. I should min-max her numbers much better than I did before. Um, <laughs> which is an insane thing to decide yeah. to do. Um, more insane than what I thought you were going to say, which is just that you made villain in Blades in the Dark. No, that was fun. Yeah. Also, also, that's not ins- that was a that was a fun choice. Valin in Blades in the Dark is such a different character from Valin yeah. in Dungeons and Dragons because Blades in the Dark is about like you know survival. It's not good versus yeah. evil. It's about getting by in a world that stacks the deck against you. Yeah, which does not it's, make sense. It's about for... it's about law and crime, and it's uh like that crime is like a survival state that you are in. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm not going to say it's necessarily, like, deeply understanding of the the social, like, things that go into crime. Mm -hmm. It thinks that heists are cool. That's the main thing. Yeah. But there's still a lot of, yeah, a lot of it is around that, like, survival aspect of you are doing crime to try and, like, break out of where you're in. Which is is sort of just a crime movie trope. But It it is, um, having now read The Lies of Locke Lamora, it is... A little cringy how <laughs> how deeply because of the f- when I first became familiar with um um blades in the dark I was the main touchstone I was familiar with is um uh dishonored which you know there's a lot of dishonored aesthetically in it but dishonored's about different stuff because you are playing a nobleman trying to regain his status you know yeah um the lies of Loch Lamora is about a group of born and raised professional criminals like criminal criminality is the family business that these guys have inherited um and that is much more like what 
Blades in the Dark is playing in the space of. I should... One of these days, I'm going to read the sequels to those books, and I've heard they're really fucking bad. <laughs> because the the first book, the main guy, Locke Lamora, he's, like, pretty divorced, you know? He's, like, yeah. pretty... He's pretty divorced. And then my understanding is that the real-life author between books one and two uh, went through a went through a divorce himself. And so I have heard some things about how divorced Locke Lamora is in book two and um, even more divorced in book three. And then it's been 12 years and he hasn't written book four, despite it ending on a cliffhanger. So <laughs> I do, I have extremely low hopes for the next two books. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Would you say that my character, uh, Ada is, Kind of a darker drun. No, you're a barbarian okay. character. Yeah, I guess in D and D terms. Yeah, in D and D terms, not like you. You played Baldur's Gate a long time ago. Yeah, you not three. You you've played Baldur's Gate one and or two, correct? Yeah. You you recall the origin story of Gorion's Ward, correct? No, because I played it when I was, like, a teen. Do I want to... Sp- I guess I'm going to spoil this. Just mark this real quick. I guess this is a spoiler. This is not a spoiler if you know anything about the, the, the Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. In Baldur's Gate 1, you're, the main character you're playing is the ball spawn, the child of the Lord of Murder. <laughs> Some might say we're all ball spawn. <laughs> well, now you can't censor the edit! <laughs> now you can't Now you can't censor the spoiler! I, I thought that the, that was in there so I could just put the time code in there. Okay, yeah, just put the time code in. Um, so in Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, you're playing as the ball spawn. The... the <laughs> <laughs> Would it be better if I say it the way they do on um uh Mages and Murder Dads? The ball spawn. No. <laughs> you are the son or daughter of the Lord of Murder Ball. Um and this it's the most predictable thing in the world, but in Baldur's Gate 3, if you're the Dark Urge, you're a ball spawn again. If you're not the Dark Urge, you're not the Ball Spawn. But if you're the Dark Urge, you're the child of the Lord of Murder. You're a Saravok. Yeah. Well, I mean... Well, you're not Saravok, because that guy... Yeah. He's got his own shit going on. But you are a Saravok. Yeah. I mean, Ada's an orphan, so who knows? I don't think Ada is a ball spot. <laughs> I'm gonna text our GM about this real quick. Okay. I'm just gonna... Put... Are you gonna do this in the, the group, or just... Yeah, you know... I was gonna just text Nora, but... Um... Anyway. Why am I... <laughs> it's kind of funny to be sitting here next to you, the person playing Ada, and just texting the, the group, everyone The else. real thing, and, like... Part of this is just, like, up to Nora, if Nora has stuff. But, like, I, as a player, am not particularly interested in, like, what's Ada's parentage. You know? Yeah. That's not something that I'm, like, hoping to have happen. Mm. You know? Um, I'm more interested in just, like, she was orphaned and yeah. grew up on the streets, and, yeah. To to circle back, though, to mental health talk, right? 
Yeah. I've just been like, it's not, it's not just the Baldur's Gate hyperfixation. That's one thing. It's that the, like, the depression thing that's been happening to me, like, I've been so resistant to doing things I know I will enjoy or will make me feel better. I feel better after I do the dishes and yet the dishes keep piling up, you know? Yeah. Um, not to mention, you know, actually fun things like playing Blades in the Dark with you all. Um, and then in tandem with that resistance, there's just this video game hole that I can dump that feeling into, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's where it's been just getting really, really bad. And that's why on Wednesday night I watched a movie because I was like, you know, um, there's a thing that they... Uh, used to say on Friends of the Table. I don't know if they still do because I, I think this is can be a a toxic attitude. I've certainly taken it in a toxic way at times in my life. Um, of like to do it, you do it. You know, um, like if you in this case, I want to get back into movie mode. There's no way for me to get back into movie mode except watching movies. You know. <laughs> Yeah. And so there's no way for me to break out of the intense Baldur's Gate hyperfixation except to actively, intentionally choose to do something else. And so I loaded up, it's funny, I loaded up Criterion Channel. I'm like, I'm going to pick a movie tonight and I don't care what it is. I'm going to, and I, I kind of loaded it up thinking to myself, I'm going to like watch something that I don't expect, that I don't know anything about, that I, I don't, you know, like, I'm not going to try, because something that happens to me sometimes is I want to watch a movie, and I get fixated for, like, 30 minutes, 45 minutes on picking the right movie. I think that's kind of where some of the resistance to the straight story is. It's like, I want to get back into movie mode, and if I don't like the straight story, then it'll mess up my ability to get back into movie mode. Which, one, I really like the straight story. But two... More than me, which people have already heard. Yes. <laughs> but two, like fussing over picking the exactly perfect movie and, and and needing to like you know whatever just puts weird expectations on it that makes it harder to watch a movie and so I load up the Criteria yeah. channel and I'm like I'm just gonna pick something and I spent a grand total of 10 minutes scrolling and I saw a bunch of things that are like outside of my wheelhouse that might be interesting. You know, I could actually stretch my wings and, and see something else that I'm not used to. But then I clicked on the Holiday Noir collection on, <laughs> on the Criterion channel and they had a Nicholas Ray movie from 1948 and it looked good. And I'm like, hell yeah, I'm going to watch this, this extremely in my wheelhouse movie. <laughs> Yeah. It's a director I already know. It's a genre I watch endlessly. Um, and, and luckily, I really fucking liked it, you know? I was really fucking taken by They Live By Night. I think it's an incredible movie, so. Yeah. Um, His debut picture, I believe. Yeah. Um, I feel like... I don't know. Maybe we can say this for the main episode, but... Because I haven't, I haven't watched movies. I still want to watch movies. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like I talked about last time reasons why I haven't been watching, which is just, like, I am busy with things, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I'm just having to read 
not more Nana crammed together, which is fun. Like I'm enjoying reading Nana. I like recording ghost divers, but like that is, that takes time. Um, like you, you have to read extra this month because your trip to Florida is coming up soon. Yeah. And it's not like your trip to Florida is going to be time where you're just going to have like, Oh, I'm just going to sit at home and watch a movie. You'll be in yeah. Florida. You'll be doing things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those where, like, uh, I just feel like I'm trying to get various things in before going to Connor's wedding. Um, and then I'll come back and then there'll be, like, other stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get back into, like, a more usual rhythm, I'm assuming. Um, so, uh, but yeah, that is, like, part of just this month. Uh, which also includes, like, we did that first session of Blades in the Dark, which was mostly, like, finishing character creation. Yeah, we all had done, like, 75% of character creation. I had done most, but there was still, like, the couple things that I had to, like, talk to the GM about, or that was, like, dependent on crew. And and also, like... Even if we all had come in with perfectly ca- sketched out characters, we knew you, every little detail. You still have to make the crew. Yeah, well, and, and yeah. talking together, it was like brought out certain things that I was like, I thought I had a really good idea of where Villain was at. And then we talked about it and I'm like, oh, well, I forgot to do my action dots. I'll do my action dots. Ooh, this is making me think about character background a little more. Oh, I, you know, I get... Uh, a hunter's pet because of the playbook I picked, and we all kind of collaboratively came up with dog. Um, can I tell? Can I tell the audience about dog? Yeah. Uh, dog um, is not a dog. <laughs> we don't really know what dog is. Yeah. Um, dog was born with six legs. Currently has five, missing one of the middle legs on one side. Yeah, we got to this by, you said that dog had five legs. Um, and at first it was like, maybe the fifth leg is where the tail is. Yeah. Um, and then I forget if... I it, think it was you, but I think it might I, have been Grace. Yeah, I forget if it was Grace or me. Suggested, what if dog, when normal, is missing a leg, has five legs because dog is missing a leg, would have six legs. Yes. Um, oh, I think it was me because I brought up Sleipnir. Uh, uh, Odin's horse. Dog. Which has eight legs, but. Dog has, um, a couple traits, just like mechanically, that manifest in very fun ways narratively, which is that dog, um, has increased potency when fighting ghosts. Dog can run like 30 miles an hour. <laughs> um, dog is fearsome, which, you know, to put it in D&D terms, dog would have like advantage on intimidation checks. Um, is loyal, which I picked because if you don't pick loyal, there is a chance that your your uh, cohort uh, mechanically can turn on you. And I really didn't want dog turning on us. Yeah, but also da- dog had the uh, downsides savage, and so which I would like to replace with the word vicious, perhaps yeah. because you know. Anyway, um, you know, dog has a craving for wanton violence, and also. Uh, was it wild or loud? I think it was wild. Yes. Yeah. And we we came up with that that dog dog doesn't drink water. Dog only drinks liquor, and dog gets is a rowdy drunk. Just yeah. starts barking. Yeah. Specifically when wild came up, 
Uh, I was joking about how now you've brought two wild animals into your home, which is Dog and then Ada, who's also in the the headquarters. So, yeah, I joked about Ada and Dog stumbling out of the bar after getting into a bar fight. Yes. (laughs) And, yeah, like, like, Valin will try to serve Dog water, and Dog just won't look at it, but then she'll pour, like... Like moonshine, like hooch into the bowl, and dogs like blip, 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 blip. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, also, dog is very old. Like, yeah. dog was my dad's dog, and dog was an old dog when my dad had the dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, not the dog, dog. Yeah. In dog. quotation marks. Dog in quotation marks. <laughs> which, which is short for we call him dog. <laughs> Also, <laughs> his full name is we call him a dog. <laughs> um, we also have Aldo, the goat that pulls our carriage, which somehow has become Grace's goat. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of like accidentally just became like Tess's job to be the goat manager on our yeah. first mission. <laughs> um, I mean, in Ada's defense, I was busy. <laughs> You were busy leaping across rooftops to clobber a dude. Yeah. I mean, I guess for people who are curious. uh, So then a week later, we did like our first actual plan. Mm -hmm. I mean, that first week, because some of it too is also like, even though I think I'd probably talked more about Ada than either of you in like the group chat, just because I've had Ada in my head for before we were even going to do this. Yeah. yeah. I I had this non-player character when I was running a game that was like... I was like drip feeding a little bit about the character and we were like about to get to the point where that non-player character was going to have like easy access with communicating to one of the, the player characters. Um, and then the, that campaign like fell apart for various reasons. Um, I mean, no, like negative yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's like really running out. You're you're trying to use some of my hand lotion in here. Well, I have um I have an itchy spot on the back of this right hand, and I was just yeah. trying to squeeze out enough to get this itchy spot, and now I'm just gonna moisturize both hands. Um as you do. Anyway, um but yeah. So I had this like idea of a character, barely got to develop the character. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna like repurpose the stuff I had in my head as a GM so I could play that character into I'm gonna like roll the clock back to earlier on in like the character's backstory and play from there. Mm-hmm. So um but yeah. Uh so in our first session then Ada Hepburn, um who is generally pretty dour, I would say, is pretty quiet, doesn't talk too much. Um when she's funny it's like a very dry, like short answer humor. You know, um, usually like slightly at the expense of someone, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also has because she's the cutter, which has this move like not to be trifled with where you can take on like a small gang or do superhuman feats. Um, and then also has this rage essence vial. And so I had this idea uh, 
talk to Nora about it to make sure it was okay of like, what if instead of the rage essence vial being like a drug I take, it is like all part of the same power where I just like go into this rage state and like become extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, but especially when I do the rage version of it, rather than just the not to be trifled version of it, I, I like the rage essence vial gives you the consequences, uh, can't stop until they're all broken and can't differentiate friend from foe mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, that's like when it like goes too far. Like I go into that state so deeply that like I kind of lose sense of like I, I just hyper focus on I am like focused on killing and taking yeah. like taking these things out. Nora was uh, having fun with that. I could tell because yeah. like in our first encounter, um, Nora's just like I'm getting kind of pissed off about this. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and it was also a thing of like. I specifically was like, you know, a vial is something you could like drop and break. Right. It's often the main way that the the like GM would do a consequence around that if you know. And I was like, I think is interesting if the consequence that you might do will more often be like you have me take the vial, basically. Uh huh. Um. Which didn't quite go to, but I was, like, ready to have this be a moment. In part because I didn't realize when it started, like, when I first decided to start having Ada do this, that we were going against a faction four tiers above us, which for people who are unfamiliar with Blades in the Dark, is you have to, like, do various things to up your tier level to get to... So they were at tier four. We had to get from zero up to tier three to do lesser effects. If you're tier two or below, you literally can't touch them. Right. Like, like if we just had a normal gun, we can't... That wouldn't hurt. Luckily, we have an arms dealer friend, so we get, like, plus one tier on our guns. So we have a tier one gun. And there's also on the (laughs) character... Like, my character sheet, I have fine weapons, so those are actually plus two. The stacks. Yeah. And so Uh. then the rage vial got me up to three. I kind of wish, um, I wish there was, like, a Blades version, too, because Blades is now, like, ten years old, and there's a lot of, like, problems with this book sometimes and the way it's written. Yeah. One of the problems that I have that really made play difficult this week was, like, um, I I think, especially in in the era that this book came out, there is a sort of, like, indie... And this still exists. An independent RPG pushback against D&D, you know? This is not a Powered by the Apocalypse game, but it takes a lot from Dungeon World and Apocalypse World, right? Yeah. And one of the things there is that it doesn't want to say you get a plus one pistol. It wants to say you get a fine pistol. You get a quality pistol. Yeah. If it said it was a plus one pistol, I would have underststood... Nora and I wouldn't have gone back and forth for 15 yeah. minutes trying to figure out if I could And if it was like, oh, because pistol. of the arms dealer, we actually should write this is a plus two pistol. But, yes. Yeah. Like, like, if they just said... Like, there's a certain amount to which, even on my own character sheet, when I then take into account the arms dealer, which is a thing I'm more likely to forget, yes. I just want to write, like, tier two or whatever. Or, you know, yes. like, two. Like, this is the, like, tier of the weapons. And I feel like if you did a Blades version two now... Well, and I just feel like sometimes information is hard to find in that book, and I feel like that's yeah. something you could fix up in a second edition. And I also think that maybe there's a little less, like, the pushback against D&D is, like, less 
not less intense. People yeah. still really fucking hate D&D for a lot of good reasons, but I think maybe there wouldn't be that impulse to, we can't do the numbers. Someone would just say, right on the sheet, you have a tier two gun. You're a tier zero character, but you have yeah. a tier two gun. I mean, one of the other reasons for the different words is... So I be- and I'd have to double check. I believe the arms dealer means everything is just up a tier. Mm-hmm. But fine, if if I am threatening someone with my knife, I would want to use my scary weapon, not my fine weapon, because the fine weapon is going to increase the tier for like attacks with it, mm-hmm. because it is like better for fighting. My scary one is not as good for attacks, but is better for intimidating. So if mm. I'm trying to do like a command roll, the scary one is going to give me the increased effects, yeah. i.e. the increased tier. I wonder, because I know, um, I know Nora... Prefer- Which Dungeons and Dragons would then have this be like plus one to intimidate rolls or whatever. Right. But the other thing with like so much of the pushback to D&D is having it be very, like, narrative first. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of this stuff... This is The also... tier stuff is meant to somewhat help you contextualize the idea of... If you have a stick, you cannot fight a dragon. Mm-hmm. You need, like, a magic sword and a special suit of armor or whatever. Right? This is also... When did... Blades came out in 2014, right? I think. When did Dungeon World come out? Um... um... Not that I don't think that. <clears throat> Shut up. Shut up, Adam Coble. I just want to know when the fucking book came out, dude. Yeah. Um. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um. The the thing about. And I I, I don't want to speak too authoritatively. I don't know where John Harper's at as he's writing this book. You know. Um. And I don't want to speak. I'm not. I mean, critical in the sort of like broad sense, not like. The book is bad because, like, obviously we're having fun yeah. playing it. I mean, my my biggest, like, core issues with the Blades in the, the Dark as, like, a book mm-hmm. is, like, you look on your play sheet and it says that you get XP if you express, like, your beliefs, um, your drives, and then, like, your heritage and background. And at no point in character creation does it have you make beliefs and drives if you look in the index in the back back of the book for the word belief or drive does not appear yes i at at one time there is a way that like that stuff is part of how you get xp but it fully expects you to just intuit and like i guess table rules how beliefs and drives work yes sorry i'm moving my because i think the thing is happening where you speak in the general direction of the water bottle and it makes a weird sound Anyway, um, I, I and I think that's part of, like, there's a lot of, I may be making some assumptions because I come to this book, Grace and I had a conversation on Thursday about this, I have read a pretty good amount of the book Blades in the Dark, not all of it, I have not read it cover to cover, but I've read it, my main familiarity with it is from listening to Marielda, you yeah. know, um... <laughs> And so I, I don't want to. I don't want to assume too much. I don't want to put too much on John Harper, um, but you think about the context of RPGs in 2014, 
We're just making the changeover in Dungeons and Dragons, the biggest RPG in the world, from fourth edition to fifth edition. Fourth edition being this extremely crunchy Warhammer miniatures moving along squares, you know, type game. Math. Math fucking city, baby. To fifth edition, which is really trying to split the difference, where if you want to play that way, you can. If you, like, if you want to play, like, if you just want to pretend it's still third edition, you can kind of still do that in fifth edition. If you want to just not ever roll and just talk to your friends, you can do that in fifth edition. Fifth edition is very much like trying to be everything to everybody, you know? Um, and so if you're an indie RPG designer, if you're a John Harper, Vincent Baker of the world, um, you're, you're pushing back on that and you're doing this very like story focused mechanics and story are like walking hand in hand. And, you know, I, I think Blades is a much crunchier game than say Apocalypse World is, you know, but, um, it's still, you know, like your beliefs and drives, that's sort of like. That's, it feels like it's just like, well, if you're playing Blades in the Dark, you know about Apocalypse World, and so you already know about beliefs and drives. You yeah. know? There's, like, some assumed knowledge going on. Yeah. I think also it's of a specific era where, like, um, what was it called? The, like, Google... The Google Circles yeah. thing. Where all, all the... Are, there was, like, 12 RPG designers, and they all knew each other on Google Circles. Yeah, I mean there was there was like entire communities of, of Google people. Plus. Google yeah, Plus. Google Plus. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's like entire communities of of like so much of in the way that there was like previous forums that this was based around. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think <laughs> I was one trying of them to Google was Burning forums, Wheel, and I got but... burning when I pee. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of them was the Forge or something. There was also like a forum that was around this, but yeah, there there was a whole bunch of stuff with Google Plus, um, where like a lot of people playing these games would also be on there, like, right? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely, and actively talking about this stuff, and so so much of like play test and hammering out rules would even happen after a book was published as like other people were talking about it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and s- some of that stuff has just been lost too, which is weird. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, like I think the blades in the dark book does a really bad job of, uh, cause also this is way that it, like breaks it up. And I feel like it doesn't really explain to players in the section specifically around players about like, what does what are tiers and what does it really mean? Yes, you know you might learn like oh you start as like a tier zero gang as a but I feel like there's a lot of stuff where like ideas get introduced in the wrong order or make it very hard to find the page that explains this thing that it's talking about where yes. it's like yeah oh the thing that I I started to say and then I kind of like went I off think topic. like the structure of the book is is bad. I think, like, the first time I tried to play Blades in 2018-ish, 2019 maybe, no, 2018, because I would have been in college, Um, I was trying to um, make one of those alchemist characters, I forget what the playbook is, but it's whatever Aubrey was in Marielda. Yes, is it Spider or Whisper? No. Um. Tinkerer? No. Artificer? Mm. Whatever. It was one of those alchemist characters, and I wanted to be, like, brewing potions and stuff. Yeah. 
and I read that whole book. Like, I, I skimmed it cover to cover, trying to find rules for rules or inspiration or anything for how do you make potions? What are potions supposed to be able to do? What are the, like, bounds on this? Leech. Um, and I could not find it. It is just sort of a up to you and the GM sort of thing. And that is not especially I had I had played one really shitty game of Burning Wheel um I had like been in some shitty 3.5 games you know yeah. I had a lot of really bad GMs in my early RPG experience that made me not think I didn't like RPGs you know um and so me just being kind of new here, I found this book through, uh, and, and this community of people through Friends at the Table that I'm, like, playing with, and I, I needed a little bit more, I needed the rails, you know, to say, here are ten potions you can brew. You can brew yeah. one that explodes into fire, you can brew one that puts people to sleep, here are maybe some drawbacks. Yeah, I think there's also, Blaze in the Dark has, like, a, like, there's also the, like, class items that you have and you'll be like okay what does this do like the spirit bane charm and you look it up and there's like more flavor text around it but there's there's so much of it that's like up to you to determine because a lot of it ends up being up to the gm to be like oh does this give you increased effect or whatever and like maybe there's like haggling at the table or even just table rules of like Mm -hmm. oh normally this stuff will give you increased effect or normally this will give you an extra die or you know I was going to wait a moment, but I need to go to the restroom right now, actually. I'm sorry. Okay. I was going to wait till we finish this conversation, but I just need to go. Um, Oh, 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 fuck, fuck. In the... I'm going to clip some of this audio of us getting up, because I'm going to go find my phone, just so Emily might go to sleep while we're still recording. Probably not. We don't want to record that long, but... I just don't want her to be sleeping on my phone. Well, jailbirds. Yeah, I don't know where the fuck my phone is. What the fuck? Oh my god, it was here the whole time. It was here the entire time. Uh, um. Yeah. I guess. Uh. While Autumn's in the bathroom. Now that I have my phone, um, which was actually just here the entire time, there's something I was going to say. Oh, um, yeah, so I'm kind of glad that, so like with our session, Ada went into this rage, tried to take on um, a, a faction that was multiple tiers above us through doing like, you know, the better weapons, um, the... Rage, uh, using the not to be trifled with as well at one point, managed to like actually rough up one of the, the spirit wardens, which are like very powerful. Um, did not kill him, wanted to kill him, uh, but did cause a lot of commotion and, and succeed there. Uh, at least in like, you know, bloodying their nose, so to speak. Um, but I was also kind of glad, like, it it was high chaos. Um, 
it was louder than I like initially intended for like our first actual we're doing a mission together to go. Um, I truly just like was not intending to move that quickly into, and some of it is I just thought it was going to be a lower tier. Like I just didn't think it was it was a tier four when it started. There was a part where I had already sort of decided that Ada was going into this rage. Um, when there was then like, I'm specifically going to be acting against the, the enemy. Um, and Nora sort of did the like, you know, Oh, with this, this, you know, all this stuff increasing your tier, uh, it'll be a reduced effect, which is the, the signal to me that like, Oh, this is a high tier. But I was like, I'm in playing the character now. So like, you know, even if Ada, because you, you sort of get that from the GM in, in Blades in the Dark as, like, you know, your characters are good at reading situations. Um, but especially at the state that she was in, it was just like, oh, the fact that, like, this person's that good just makes her angrier, you know? Makes her want to push herself more to, like, actually mess him up. Um, so, uh, but I'm also kind of glad that it, like, it... It, it like escalated that quickly because I, I have had these ideas around this character in my head for so long, uh, that it was nice to sort of like get a bunch of the initial stuff on the table. Um, so that it's like a thing that we can immediately start working on instead of Ada kind of just being like dark and brooding for like multiple sessions and like maybe having these small flare ups of, of violence. Um, it like immediately became everyone's problem um like from the jump you know it immediately became uh autumn's character uh valin and grace's character tess's like both of their problems that like ada did this and so it's like oh, okay cool we can like get into some of the tension around that maybe um faster than like me having this as an idea of like a core problem or tension that it has. Um, and then like sitting on it for a while or just like slowly developing it. Cause I've, I've had that character in my head for so long. I'm just glad, uh, in some ways that I was able to have it explode like that right away. Um, I mean, it would have been fun if I had like really excellent roles throughout it. Um, you had some bad fucking roles. Yeah. I had well, some I had some good roles, but also I feel like and this is not complaining, I feel like I kind of like did less, you know, than you. I mean there's a way that like I think it's partially because Ada really was not acting much in the beginning. Of yes. The which was somewhat by like by my intention. Mm-hmm. I was like she's just like the driver right now. Yeah. She's trying to sort of keep her head down. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know how much you heard while you were not a goddamn thing. I heard, I heard fucking peanuts parents. Okay. Yeah. Well, part of what I was saying was like, um, when Nora fully revealed to me, like the tier that I'm going against is really high. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a bad idea. I had already done narrative things and like mechanical things to commit Ada to being into that, like in that rage state yeah, where I felt like it would have been a betrayal of like Ada in that rage state. Even getting that would be her perceiving that this person is still like a little bit above her, even when she's pushing herself like that. 
But I was like, if I'm playing this character the way that she is, she would just be mad about that. I feel I, I feel similarly uh, where I feel like um, I mechanically didn't understand the tears stuff. Um, and I, 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 Nora has apologized about it a little bit of like, oh, I feel like I just kind of put you in a situation where you didn't fully understand you were in over your head. And I was like, it's fine, though, because the Lynn and Autumn were sort of realizing it at the same time. And I want to play Valin as a little naive. Yeah. And so the the only like we all as players maybe would have known, you know, there there was the, like this uh, aspect of the mechanics were confusing for you. And so you weren't immediately on the same page. But like. You know, maybe we all as players would learn when Ada learned, but for a while, Ada was the only one aware that, like, we were going against a high-tier enemy. Yeah. The rest of you weren't really aware of that, because I was the only one up on the roof, like, actually going against these, and, like, it was specific, like, it was, like, misty, hard to see. There was periods where all your character could see was my glowing (laughs) glowing blue eyes. Yeah, yeah. Which is not normally how Ada is, either. It's, like, specifically this rage state thing, so. And, 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 And so, like, honestly, it kind of worked out good, because... I feel like I would have, if I, Autumn, realized the danger we were in from the jump, I probably would have um, changed from, like, we have to fight them to we have to escape, like, one or two turns earlier, maybe? Turns in a very loose sense here. It's not like we rolled initiative. But, like, I would have... I would have pivoted a little sooner but in some ways it felt more true to the character that i wasn't pivoting to escape and now maybe in the future now that i understand and valin has sort of realized how dangerous duskfall can be now maybe valin becomes a little warier but this first like real job that she's had in the city she's like i don't know maybe or or maybe she'll be like well, we went up against those spirit wardens and, you know, we did yeah. some damage. Well, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, uh, part of what I was saying is since I've had Ada in my head for so long, there is a way that either, like, I just drip, drip fed, like, you know, there's a little bit of stuff. There's this moment of like explosive violence from Ada or something, but we're against a low tier enemy. And I just like, and maybe it is like, you can't be killing people because that's also a problem in Duskwall. Hmm. But maybe I just like, you know, kill a small gang that's like a low tier, right? Um, where it's not like immediately a problem for the group in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, or there's even the way that like maybe Ada gets good rolls and kills the spirit warden, and then there's also Ada rolled like, so bad. The fact that I got that I was going this hard, still managed to like bloody the spirit warden's nose. Yeah, despite how bad you were rolling, but also <laughs> got bad rolls and got fucked up, and like not entirely, but sort of messed up the mission. Mm. Um, means that. Like, I'm kind of happy with the final outcome. Yeah. Even though I'm like, I'm probably gonna have to spend extra coin just to try and fucking heal up. Yeah. 
at least somewhat and like reduce stress next time. Like I'm pretty sure at least one or two coins are just going to be get towards getting Ada back to normal, yeah. which is fine. Cause right now she doesn't have aspirations to like use that money for anything else. Right. Yeah. Um, so I was also playing it being like, to some extent I'm fine burning money on, on Ada making poor choices right now. Yeah. You? Um, but it's also like, I'm glad that it went the way it went where, it went just well enough, but was also enough of a problem for everybody that I think we can get to the tension that I've like been thinking would happen with Ada anyway, sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that it can move beyond the ideas I had around this character into what happens after that. Yeah. So anyway, because her attitude right now too is going to be like, like, I don't know what's going to happen in next session, but like if Tess is upset about this or something, it is going to be like, Okay, are you going to be mad that I failed to kill the spirit warden, or are you mad that I tried? Because, because <laughs> <laughs> I know which one I'm mad about. <laughs> <laughs> um, I um, I feel like we're kind of hitting an end yeah. of this talk. Um, something that I just sort of had in my head like 20 minutes ago. Um, to to that maybe is a place to move on to is. I know that Nora um, much prefers Scum and Villainy. She's been a player in a pretty long-running Scum and Villainy game lately, um, and i I wanted to ask I want to ask her like how much of you preferring Scum and Villainy is down to the book is written a little better, yeah, because it is a you know follow up yeah. sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> I got the uh, the Mech Blades in the Dark game. I'm trying to remember what it's called. I've been wanting to read through that as well, because I also bet that that is just... I mean, this is also sometimes the curse of being, like, the person who made the system. Mm-hmm. Is it's always going to get hammered out more. Yeah. Like, I even know... if you do a good job playtesting. Yeah. I also... I know Nora really wants to play a book we picked up, Band of Blades, that is a, uh, a forged-in-the-dark game where you are in a, like, m- military fantasy setting... And there is a, a, like, adventure module, almost, that you are playing through. It is a, like, you are going on a military campaign. And, the like, you go through, like, these five jobs, and the last job is, you know, like, break the siege, raid the castle, whatever it is, you know? And I, I think Nora's been really interested in, like, how do you do this sort of pre-written adventure in a forged in the dark game. Um, yeah. so I, I, now that we're getting our feet wet with blades, I'm like, Oh, well, we, we should play that, you know, somewhere down the line. Yeah. Um, um, I have one and I read it a little bit and I, it's like a, uh, it was like translated. It's like an older Japanese role playing game and it was finally translated and I got it. I'm trying Legend to of the five rings. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's one that I kind of want to play and that seems interesting, but it's also, it's like a little bit more agreeably, but it's like, it's very specifically in this, like, there's just this era of JRPG thing where it's like your load matters, but like the way there's like little pieces that you use to like mechanically track stuff and everything. Um and it, other- it just seems like a, a cool system where it's like, oh, you're like adventurers going on a little adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
The other thing that I know, and I think Nora was being pretty light-handed about it um, in our first play session, but I know, talking to me, she's been a little more, like, eager. Like, I think when you two came over, because we all were using, like, some of her D&D books as, like, clipboards to write on, you know? Yeah. She, I think she said something like, oh, Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen, a level 1 to 11 adventure for Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. Ah, oh, interesting. <laughs> I, I I know that, you know, we've just started this Blades game. It's not like we're going to drop it next yeah. week or something. But I know that, like, part of her is like, how do I get these nerds to play Dragonlance with me? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, th- I think part of part of that interest is that it goes, it's not just a, like, level 1 to 5, like so many of the things are. You know, it is 1 to 11, so it would be a longer yeah. thing. Um. I maybe we just maybe Nora and I just start hanging out with Dice Dojo and find some people to turn into Dragonlance weirdos. Yeah, I've I have affection s- for Dragonlance. Uh, I have like weird old affection for Dungeons and Dragons, but it's just a system that I I don't enjoy playing at a table anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Yeah, uh, I, I mean I could still try, but it's there's just like ways that that failure works within Dungeons and Dragons that I think is like. Like, one of the big examples, and some of this also can be fixed with how DMs work. Mm-hmm. Like, when I was a DM, I got much, much better at this, even though it's like, like, um, I'll do the example, which is that you come to a door, and then you have to roll. Mm-hmm. And within the rules of Dungeons & Dragons, you fail that roll, and it's just like, well, okay, I can't open the door. Yeah. Um, And you have to, like, in a way that, like, I... Th- Maybe 5th edition has gotten better at communicating or, like, talking about this. But, like, the thing that I had to learn when I was a DM is either I don't make you roll against the door. Mm -hmm. I just don't unless I know what's going to happen unless you fail. Yeah. You failing at opening the door means this trap triggers, Mm. but... Even la- even more important than that, because the trap trigger is like, okay, I got hit with the trap, now I just have to try the door again. Right. But instead, like, you fail to open the door, here comes an enemy, or here comes some new <clears throat> narrative push. I know that for for the for Nora's friend who DMs a lot, and for her, um, something that she's mentioned is like, if you're if you're a thief, if your thing is lockpicking. And this is like a DC five lockpick. Just don't make you pick it. Like if your specialization is I'm the guy that picks locks, why would I make you pick this lock? You know, yeah. unless there is a like narrative, like only making you pick the lock if there is a specific complication in mind, not just well, yeah. it's a locked door. You've got a oh, you rolled a one, even though you have a like plus 12 to picking locks because you're a, you know, whatever. Yeah. You didn't pick that lock. You're a moron. You know, yeah. I just... Yeah. yeah. But I feel like a lot of that is like a... <clears throat> uh, the system itself doesn't support that kind of interaction, no. or it's like not geared towards it. Yeah. Well, you know, like I say, 5e is so much trying to be everything to everyone. I'm really interested to how this like, 2024 Player's Handbook... I'm I'm so curious what this thing is going to be, you yeah. know, because um, it it feels really like 
they're continuing to try to have their cake and eat it. And I think they, from what I've heard of the playtests, it sounds like these will be good, interesting changes. But I'm I'm so curious about what this, what Wizards prioritizes because, you know, there's there's so many different things that need to. There are so many different things that you could elect to fix in 5e, you know? There's like, there's like, you know, oh, we made this class more interesting or whatever. And then there's shit like, hey, Mike Marles used the word savage a lot in this section. Um, And, you know, because of Critical Role and Dimension 20 and uh, the Adventure Zone... There is a very different audience for Dungeons and Dragons now than there was when 5e started um, that feels a way about the word savage. In, yeah. For, for one example. Um, and I know that they're like changing the wording around race and there's not going to be half elves anymore. There will be like you pick an elf and then you pick a, a like human parent or something like that you know like there's a lot of there's a lot of like sensitivity stuff that they're going to be tweaking i assume and i'm i'm so curious to see how it shakes out because they're not you can't you can't take the racism out of D D. yeah and so i'm so curious at how what their attempt at it is going to be um which uh this is going to tie into some thoughts i have about the straight story being a crazy racist movie that i still enjoy <laughs> Yeah. Should we get into movie talk? Sure. I'll make a mark. You you didn't have any other non-homophobia. We talked about RPGs. We talked mental health. Yeah. I've been playing some Atelier Rizlariana or whatever. It. I don't know why they don't call it just Atelier Resna. You? Because I feel like most of them, they just call them what their like nickname is, even if they have a longer name. Like, it's not like Atelier Shella and Shellastera. It's Atelier Shelly. You and Nora both, I just, like, blinked and got into new mobile games, and I'm like, what happened here? Because I, like, came, I came over here yesterday, and you're just, like, playing Atelier, and I'm like, we're, the movie's starting! Or, 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 like, I'm reading your kid a book. I'm, like, reading a book to the four-year-old, you're sitting over there playing Atelier, and I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) And then, like, Nora was playing, um, Slice and Dice, which seemed like a pretty cute little rolling dice game. Yeah. Something. I couldn't tell what that was. The um, real thing with the Atelier Rosariana is that I kind of just want to, like, like, I never played Ryza. I just want to, like, get the first Ryza game and play it. Mm-hmm. But there's also just such a thing of, like, when I'm sitting down to play a video game, I can play. I should be playing Final Fantasy VIII right now. Mm-hmm. Um, The mobile game is just a thing where you do, like, one thing on your phone and then you put it away. Or two things on your phone, you know? We didn't talk about... I'm going to the bathroom and I I do a little Atelier yeah, thing. Yeah. We didn't talk about the most important thing of all. What? So when I was in Phoenix, um, my mom and stepdad and I were playing a game called 31 a lot, which is just, oh. you know, you got a deck of cards and it's kind of like a mix of Blackjack and Go Fish where you're like trying to get up to 31 um, and there's like... You know, you can pick up a card that's been put down, and you discard a card, or you draw from the pile, you know, whatever it is. Um, and mom was encouraging me, like, you should start, we were having a, we were having a hoot 
I was drinking rye. I was drinking bourbon. Uh, we, we played for like three or four hours and we were just talking, you know, like, it's like one of those nights where you're like, not, you start talking about politics, but weirdly, my stepdad's become more Republican and I've become more communist, but in some way, we have come together on our politics because both of us are like, wow, this system is so broken and we're just kind of bitching and it was like, obviously we don't agree on just about anything, but we do agree on, like, hating everything a little bit. And so we were just having fun playing cards. And Mom's like, oh, you should you should start a card game. Um, and I was like, I should, you know? I love playing poker. I love, and I was really loving playing 31. And yesterday, you taught me after the movie how to play um, Koi Koi. And yeah. um, I can tell I'm going to become a fiend. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's the other... That, that game is fun that's the other thing that i like fixated on a little bit this like last week or two um is hanafuda um it's like a thing that i've kind of wanted to learn for a while because it just shows up in yakuza movies and stuff um and also so there's um there's different versions of it but like there's another style of deck that exists in japan that is numeral based the the symbols are a little bit harder to tell um but like um and you'll see this in like red peony gambler it will show up um and so it's like here's like a a bunch of different examples of decks like these aren't all okay like what you're seeing here is like different versions these almost look like mahjong um yeah but like so like here in particular is like you'll see this in yakuza and so it's like, okay, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then the like ten is like a face card. Mm-hmm. Right? These are like more specifically based on um the suit cards from being like imported like normal, you know, the the playing cards that like we have in yeah. a lot of like Europe and America and I, everything. I don't know anything about the history of like card games. So Hanafuda specifically, like the Hanafuda deck comes about from, you have like essentially. How many cards are in a Portuguese playing cards come in? Um, 48. Okay. Because it's 12 times four. Um, so yeah, you have like the Portuguese suited playing cards. They come into Japan. Gambling is obviously happening with it. Here's. Okay. Uh, Japanese from it, but. Um, yeah, I think this is like, anyway, um, the cards come in to Japan, gambling's happening around it, but there's also a lot of like outlawing of gambling. And so there's this like complex evolution in Japan specifically around gambling cards Mm -hmm. to try to continue to like throw off. You're telling me, like, the classic, like, 52 deck of cards is French? Yeah. Fuck! Um. So, anyway. Um. They are trying to avoid recognition of what they have are gambling playing cards. Okay. And so, multiple changes are occurring. It's going through various styles. 
Hanafuda specifically comes about because the intention is, oh, these are little, like, tiles that are just displaying, like, the 12 months. Like, it's just, like, a little keepsake sort of thing mm-hmm. that they're then playing these games with and gambling with and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and because there's, like, this history of both the cards evolving in Japan to try to, uh, like, evade gambling bans, and then also making them harder to recognize by authorities, you get the this set of deck, like, this deck that, obviously, if you're playing the games, you can parse what's happening, but that has become largely divorced from a lot of other playing cards that have existed hmm. that like, if you're used to just playing with the French style or even the Portuguese style deck, you look at Hanafuda and you don't recognize what's happening. And so especially like when red peony gambler will show someone doing a Hari Fuda where you have like one through six, mm-hmm. it's just one through six and there's four suits or, you know, I, I think sometimes there's like more, but um, I think there's ones with like eight copies and stuff of the six. But anyway, um, those are easier to parse because as long as you have a basic understanding, it's pretty quick to be like, oh, that's a higher value or whatever. Mm. And you can quickly recognize, oh, they're just trying to match like uh, ones or something because the one pattern is like the same across all of them. Uh Hanafuda is just harder to parse in movies. Like we watched Pale Flower on this podcast. And it was very hard for me to track what was happening. We sort of talked about, like, not really knowing exactly. Like, there's a lot placed into, here's the actual games being played. They're showing them to you. But from the outside, if you don't know the Hanafuda deck, like, I'm sure you weren't following it. No, not a bit. So I've been interested in learning Hanafuda. The Clubhouse Games was on sale. I also figured that'd be a fun thing with my kid to, like, play different games. So we Checkers and... We did like um, whatever the Roman one is, or the yeah, where you like are doing the Senate. Or oh three, yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. played that one. My kid actually beat me because um, I was understanding the basic rules better than they were for a while, and then they caught on. But because of the fact that they didn't understand it at first. They had then gotten themselves into a situation where they then created a very hard for me to beat thing. It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a little bit of like a beginner's luck thing, but it was very funny. I um, I would really like your kid to get past the phase they've been in for the last four years, let's say, where they hate um, losing in games. Um, yeah. I was playing rock, paper, scissors uh, before bedtime with them, and they were getting pissed off at me because i was like i'm like you just guess kid i don't like i I said it much much more gently yeah but i'm like you it's guessing you have to think she threw rock last time i bet she'll throw scissors this time that's all there is to it and anyway um hopefully your kid can get to where we can play go fish sometime because i would love to play you know that sort of stuff um but anyway so I was doing Hanafuda on the Switch. I was figuring out the actual cards. And then I got a Hanafuda deck, a physical one. I might get a red back one at some point, too, just to have, like, the two. Because there's also some where you might want both. Uh-huh. Um, and then I was looking into other games. There's, like, a, a specific website that, like, tracks and is trying to, like, 
compile a bunch of different Hanafuda games. Um, and then from that, I went and watched Pale Flower and figured out, I understood what was happening and I understood the rules well enough that I then looked at that website and figured out what games they were playing. Oh, that's fun. So one of them is Ehonbiki, which is an, uh, a variation of Tehonbiki, which was would be played with this like Harifuda deck. Uh-huh. We have one through six, so instead you do the first six months, and you're just doing... Uh, that's the one where like, they'll have the, the Hanafuda cards under it, and there's like the cloth over it, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll pick one, and they'll have it face down in the cloth over it, and then everyone's like placing bets. And what they're betting is... The pick, the card that you picked was March, i.e. three, mm-hmm. right? And so they're putting bats on if it's going to be three or whatever. Um, the other one that you see them playing is, um, oh, I forget the, the exact name of it, but basically like it translates to like front or back. And so it would actually be a thing where like you'd say you'd be dealing for koi, like koi koi. Hmm. As an example, like if we are both going to play Koi Koi, there are people spectating. We deal and instead of dealing that fe- uh, field face up, we would deal it face down. And once it's all dealt, then the, the dealer would be like, OK, front or back. And the spectators would guess front or back is going to have the the points values of the cards when you add them together, like closer to a five basically as the first thing Mm -hmm. because essentially what you're guessing if there's more of the low value ones that are one point it's going to get you further away from five okay so you're like trying to place bets on basically which side is going to be the better side but there's like a specific way that that's decided on through the value stuff and then everything flips over and then based on what they bet they would get something right um so i didn't follow that at all i'm gonna be honest with you but it's fine uh you were basically like one side would have like a 20 value card a 10 value card a 10 value card and a five value card this is so it'd be 45 and so it ends in a five and then the other one has like all one value cards this is not about you in any way you were explaining koi koi to me last night and you did a good job explaining, I cannot understand card games unless I play them. Yeah. My mom was explaining 31, where you're just trying to get cards to 31, and you discard one and draw one. And I could not understand it until we played a couple hands. Yeah. And then well, as soon as... In, it, this as, case, as, in this case, though, you're not even, as the spectator, as the person who's playing that, you're not even doing anything with the cards other than basically just doing a, uh, I think this one's going to be better or I'm going to think that one's going to yeah. be better. And then they tally it up. But, but, but like you did a perfectly fine job explaining Koi Koi yesterday. It didn't make any sense to me until we played a couple hands, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I brought all this up because now that we have played a few, I'm like, this is fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get hooked on this. Um, yeah. So I've enjoyed it in part because it, I now understand the Hanafuda deck. I now see it and know vaguely what's happening at the very least. Like the biggest thing that like, there's still, it's not that I don't remember, but like sometimes I'll see one that's not 
like I know instantly Cherry Blossoms is March. Like that one is like mm. the association is so clear to me. March, Cherry Blossom season, blah, blah, blah. You know, I see Pine and I know it's January. There's ones where I'll see it and I'll be like, June, you know, like it like takes me a moment to remember what, what month it is. Yeah. But, um, I'm I'm working on a purely visual level right now and I'm yeah, trusting. This is how you, you, especially for Koi Koi, how you start out because it yeah. is just purely visual. I, I will, the rest of it will come. Yeah. But the other thing is that I, <coughs> I also just think Koi Koi is a, a fun game because once you start getting the sense of how it works, there's obviously still chance in what your hand is and what you're drawing from like into the field. So whenever you play one from your hand and then you just draw the top and then that's also like a card that you're playing mm-hmm. is the way that it works. Um, and obviously that second one is like pure luck, pure chance. There's still certain ways that you can game around it of like trying to have something in the field that might pair, but then it could easily go to the other person. Right. Um, anyway, but there's a lot of stuff where like you see what the other person has in terms of like the, the combinations they're trying to make to win. You can look at what everyone has gotten so far and what's in the field and very, very easily do a certain amount of card counting. Cause it's once you're like, okay, two of the January have already been claimed and I have a January in my hand, which means if it's in the deck and it shows up, it's mine. If they have the other January in their hand, maybe they'll put it down and I can get it. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's all that kind of stuff. I would also like to learn, um, Mahjong reading. Nana has made me want to read Mahjong or made me want to learn Mahjong, which I tried to learn Mahjong a while back because a lot of VTubers were playing it. And it wasn't making sense to me. And getting into Hanafuda yesterday sort of unlocked for me. I'm like, I probably just need to play some Mahjong. I probably just need to, like, hit up the abnormal mapping Discord and be like, Hi, who would like to play Mahjong against me? Like, hop into voice for, you know, an hour. Play some Mahjong. Um, You know, maybe we can screen share so it's open hand and you can sort of, like, tell me the rules. Because I feel like... If I play two rounds of, like, open hand of a game, I can start to get a feel for it to where I can start to learn it by myself. It's just the, like, first round or two that I, I yeah. just need somebody to walk me through it. Um, I know there's some, like, versions of Mahjong that are on Clubhouse Games, and so that might be a thing that I'm going to try and do as yeah. well soon. Clubhouse Games is a little weird in that, like... It it's doesn't always explain all the rules to you because here's, it's automating it. Here's my thing about Clubhouse games. It's on the Nintendo Switch. Yeah. A device I would like not to use. Yeah. Also, you <laughs> hold it and you feel like it's a Fisher-Price Steam Deck. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they should port Clubhouse games to the Steam Deck. I wonder... I There's, bet there are Mahjong games on Steam. That's got to be a thing. That's got to be a thing. But the other thing is that, like... Listener, if you know a good Clubhouse Games style thing, or or it doesn't even have to be a big collection like Clubhouse Games is, if you know, here's the best, like, Hanafuda game on Steam, here's the best Mahjong game on Steam, here's the best, you know... Yeah. You, you get some, like, French-suited cards and just start... um you know, you play war if you want to. Let us know. Write in yeah. export audio podcast at gmail.com. 
Um, at some point, I want to like really learn how to do Hachi Hachi, which is like another really common Hanafuda game, um, where you specifically are like it's it's a three player one. The actual capturing cards is similar to Hanafuda, but all the point scoring is like way more complex because it's like it's a zero sum game, so it's specifically based around like gambling. So you, we would also need like chips and stuff. Um, and it is just the thing of like, I need like, even if you're in on Hanafuda, we need to like get Emily in on Hanafuda or like mm-hmm. Nora or something. I, I, cause you need to learn the Hanafuda deck, not even well enough to do like Koi Koi, but well enough that you then get it dealt to you for Hachi Hachi and you look at your hand and you go, Oh, I have like, uh, like in my hand, I have, and I'm going to declare like triple. Ko- and Koi Koi these is, are the points I get because I have triple. Koi Koi is easier to learn a little bit because you do the points at the end. You know, mm-hmm. it sounds like this Hachi Hachi is a game where you do the points as you, you play. You do most of the points at the end, but at the beginning, there's this like compensation thing yeah, yeah, where yeah, the yeah. those points might get canceled out by stuff that happens at the end. You are so, so in the weeds on this. Yeah, so you and like I'm really trying to. I've been trying to subtly stop you from getting so in the weeds, but I'm gonna stop being subtle about it. Yeah, <laughs> but you're like, I have two triples, um, or I have like triple two doubles or something, and so then you're like, people have to pay me compensation because I have a bad hand. But they don't actually give you the money yet. They put it aside because they will pay it to you. Uh-huh. But then, depending on how the game we goes... We need to start the podcast. Maybe they you don't. Do, you don't do the I, compensation stuff. <laughs> I don't want to be mean. I'm really sorry if I'm being mean. There's just only so much of learning the rules on a podcast that I can handle. <laughs> start the fucking podcast. Start the fucking podcast.